Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That it with your AEW All Out and NXT Worlds Collide instant analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Sunday night as soon as All Out went off the air. We are here to break down everything that happened on that show as well as NXT Worlds Collide earlier Sunday afternoon. Vintage Chris Vanini is here along for the ride. We will welcome him in a moment, but we have so much to get to on this show that I am starting as soon as I possibly can by reminding you that this podcast... So please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also, leave a review. Let everyone know why you love the show and why they should subscribe. Those ratings and reviews, super important. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. If you did that, then this weekend you got three live shows on Twitter Spaces. You got to participate in six polls doing pre- and post-show grades for WWE Clash of the Castle, NXT Worlds Collide, and AEW All Out. And that factors directly into our conversations here on the podcast. You also got to tweet and DM with us, and it was awesome uh, talking to you guys all weekend. So please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. One quick note before we get going into the show. Uh, Look, the Silver King was super frustrated Saturday night. It was a very difficult day. A lot was going on personally with work, uh, with wrestling, obviously, WWE Clash at the Castle. And for some reason, for the first time in the history of this podcast, iTunes, Apple Podcasts just refused to upload our episode. And the vast majority of you, I know, listen on Apple Podcasts. It took four hours for me to get it live. It is now officially live. It's been live all day. The listenership for that episode, understandably down because it wasn't as instant of an analysis uh, for those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts as normal. But please, folks, just so you are all aware, that show is now live and available on Apple Podcasts. So do not forget to go back and listen to the WWE Clash of the Castle instant analysis before Raw on Monday night. And of course, all this WWE stuff coming down in this week. I just wanted to point that out there. The Silver King was immensely frustrated, worked really hard on the show. I want to make sure all of you get to listen to it and don't think that I just forgot you and didn't go ahead and provide an instant analysis for WWE Clash at the Castle. Okay, that is out of the way. Thrilled to welcome in vintage Chris Vanini. But as we do here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, instant analysis style, we welcome Chris in by cracking open a cold one. And tonight, the Silver King is drinking caramel cream ale from Due South, the defunct Due South Brewing uh, here in South Florida, my favorite beer from my favorite brewery. Chris, you've had a long weekend traveling down here, uh, sorry, traveling back home to Texas from Atlanta. You got to see a big time college football game there. I don't know if you have any drink in front of you, but welcome back to the show. Yes, good to be back. Good to be home in person. I just have a water tonight. I got to say, I'm exhausted from that show from the weekend, from traveling, from all kinds of things. And frankly, the alcohol would just make me a little bit more sleepy and yeah. ramble on. And we don't want to go too long uh, on this podcast because there is a lot to talk about. But I was not, by the way, that Clash of the Castle pod, if you did listen to it, I wasn't on it because, like I said, I was literally at Georgia, Oregon while it was going on. No, we, we were better have my, it, was, it was fine. We I, didn't miss you. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. <laughs> I, I will have my thoughts on the whole show uh, on our Tuesday, normal Tuesday WWE episode. Yes, on, that's true. On Tuesday, before we get to the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly on that episode, we will do a mini, like, second chance 
Clash at the Castle analysis. I have a couple thoughts. I am actually going to trade it. Uh, as I said, trade, change a couple of my match grades. And I do want to give Chris a moment to talk about all those matches as well. So don't miss the instant analysis because there's very detailed breakdowns and opinions on that show. But yes, please join us on Tuesday for Chris's breakdown of Clash at the Castle, along with everything else coming this week in WWE. So Chris, I'm very glad you mentioned that. And of course, jokes aside, I am, of course, very happy that you're here to break down AEW All Out and NXT Worlds Collide. Look, there's a lot to get to on this show. I think it's fair to say, Chris, you know, we're we're the host and co-host of the show, right? The goal is to lift our listeners up, but we, you know, we also are honest with our audience. And I got to tell you, coming into the show, I know you were traveling. You watched this like as soon as you got home, so I'm sure you're tired. I am absolutely exhausted. Like I'm, I'm actively efforting to get my energy level up here. I don't drink caffeine. Um, and don't do many of the other things that would get your uh, those levels, your energy levels up high. Um, yet here I am, you know, it's we're past midnight on the East Coast. And I just think it's getting a little ridiculous when it comes to AEW. 15 match cards, five and a half hours. I understand they only do four a year. It's just way too much. I, I should not be exhausted coming out of this to do a podcast. And I can't even imagine how it feels to be in the crowd for five and a half hours. You could tell. In fact, I do know how it feels because the crowd died over the second half of the show. But I just can't imagine what it would be like to go home after a five and a half hour pay-per-view on a Sunday night, like right in September. You have school. Granted, it's Labor Day tomorrow, but you still have school. People have work. Like, man, it is. this was exhausting. Yeah, I mean, shout out to Labor Day for most people getting Monday off tomorrow. That will help. We don't. Look, this, you and this I don't. was... We, we don't. This was... The probably the biggest wrestling weekend of the year when you consider the two top promotions having two big shows on the weekend. Yep. Uh, you, you have an NXT big show as well. And it's the busiest college football weekend of the year, which is for us our day jobs. And so, yeah, it's been it's it's been a lot. Um, but I am excited to talk about all out. There's a lot that we yes, did like. Definitely. There's, there's there's parts that we didn't like. And um, we'll get into that. There's a lot to talk about, at least at the top, that's for sure. We are, and we're going to get into all of that right now. Quick, just so you all know how this episode is going to break down. We will have timestamps in our episode description. So you will know exactly when the AEW All Out Instant Analysis begins and the NXT Worlds Collide Instant Analysis. So if you need to jump to one or the other, or if you start listening one day, the next day you pick it up, you want to hear the NXT, check the episode description, and that will tell you exactly the timestamp you need to go to to hear what you want to hear. Uh, so yes, we're going to start with AEW. It was obviously the bigger show, especially compared to NXT. There's a lot that happened on this show. There was a little that happened on Rampage. Some of those notes are included within this AEW All Out Instant Analysis, but I don't go too deep on anything because we really want to get to the meat of the bone here. And that is exactly what we are going to do right now. Uh, now, what we normally do is we start with the main event and I break down the matches in order of really what I felt are the most important. Uh, in this case, based on storylines and events that transpired during All Out, we're not exactly going to do that. You'll understand why when we get there. So Chris, let's actually start this AEW All Out Instant Analysis by breaking down the very first match on the main card, the casino ladder match, Claudio Castanoli, Wheeler Yuta, Penta Oscuro, Ray Phoenix, Andrade El Idolo, Dante Martin, and a Joker. Quickly on Rampage, Phoenix fought Blake Christian for some reason. 
Phoenix won with a sit-out pile driver. Whole thing was a waste of time. Back to All Out. Uh, as I said, this opened the main card. Andrade and Roosh were alone in the ring with a ladder. Andrade chose not to quickly climb and win. Instead, they just set up more ladders for future offense. An hour later, uh, they tried climbing and got stopped. Andrade hit a sunset flip powerbomb on Yuta into the ladder, but it didn't break. It was, it was one of the best spots on the entire show. It was the first spot on the entire show. Uh, there was also a really weird Claudio Andrade spot with two ladders. I think they were supposed to collapse, but they didn't. It just didn't work. <laughs> Dante sprung off the ropes onto a ladder. He did it again as I actually wrote Cesaro here, but as Claudio uh, tried a pop-up European uppercut, both were really cool spots. Penta murdered Andrade with a Canadian destroyer into an elevated ladder. Phoenix then hit a great frog splash off the top rope, flying out squide, out squide, outside. You can tell I'm tired. Squashing Rouge through a table. Dante sprung himself onto Claudio's back on the ladder when suddenly a bunch of guys wearing all black murdered all the healthy wrestlers who were still up and not knocked out. And suddenly a guy climbed to the top, took the chip. It was not a brass ring. It was a casino chip. We should have remembered that because it's a casino uh, ladder match. Uh, Grabbed the chip and revealed himself to be Stokely Hathaway. The guys, of course, are the stable that Stoke has been building. So Gun Club, Ethan Page, W. Morrissey, probably someone else I'm missing, but those people were all there. Uh, Suddenly, the Joker was announced and a guy wearing all black with a white mask that had horns on it came out to Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, which, by the way, is a fantastic song. Uh, He got into the ring. Stoke handed him the chip for the win, and then he cut off the music. The man pretended to reveal himself only to keep the mask on with the entire crew leaving together. So, look, there's no really other way of putting this. This was extremely disappointing as a finish to the ladder match. That's notwithstanding what may or may not have happened with this in the future. I'm talking about simply in terms of this match itself. It was an eye roll of an ending to a match type that almost promises, almost always promises incredible wrestling. Like This was akin to like Brock Lesnar winning money in the bank with Mustafa Ali on top of the ladder, watching him the whole time like a dope. And then Brock comes in. He just takes the briefcase. It wasn't good in the moment no matter what you thought of the storyline that followed it. Some people loved Brock Party, others did not. But in the moment, you're like, wow, that was a shitty finish. Now, the match that happened before this, the actual wrestling, it was a complete and utter mess. There were great spots. I think you can note the three I mentioned that I you could hear I really loved. And that was kind of wasted. And at the same time, there was a lot of sloppiness, a lot of mistakes from all the wrestlers. My hope coming out of it was that the entire thing would be resolved by the end of All Out instead of making us wait until Dynamite. We can talk about our initial thoughts on who we believed was under the mask in a moment, but in terms of the match booking, that's how I felt. And I don't even have a grade for it because there was no finish. It was just bullshit and someone got the chip. Yeah, so AEW has always had a problem with battle royals and several people single ladder matches like this. They're always a mess. They just, they, they, things don't work out. You don't know what the rules are. By the way, is this the first casino ladder match? No, I, I don't, it I, is I, not. I, they've done other ladder matches, and I know they've picked, but the idea that like you have to come out in increments like a it's battle so royal for a ladder match was so weird. I mm-hmm. swear I had not seen that before. Also, if that's the case, if it's like a battle royal, a Royal Rumble, a War Games, 
shouldn't you not be able to pull down the thing until everybody's in the match? I don't know if that's the rule or no, not. no, because it, the, the idea you of don't it, want you don't want to be last then. No, no. Really quickly from a rule standpoint, it's it's there's a positive and a negative. If you're out there early, yes, you have a greater chance to win it before there's more people there. But you're also out there longer and taking more right. damage. So the person who comes in last is the freshest it, and, ha- and yeah, has, would it, theoretically have the best chance to win. So it, it's, it, yeah, it's you know, six of one, half of a dozen of the other. You can argue whether the rules are good, but they do kind of make sense, yeah. I will say. I, they're, they're just, they're weird. Roosh is like taking his time on the ramp, getting undressed while Yuda's climbing up the ladder and commentary is like, what the hell is he doing? He's going <laughs> to, they're like pointing out how stupid this is. Cameras keep cutting back and forth. You shouldn't keep showing Yuda climbing up the ladder because clearly he's not supposed to win it at this point. I'm going to say this several times in this episode, but AEW's production on a lot of these moments was messy again. So Mm -hmm. match was a whole mess. The Cesaro with the ladder making an X. Nobody knows what the hell is going to go on. It's just, this was really, really messy. And then, you know, the, the, the black covered people run into the ring. I'm thinking, Oh, this is like retribution or something like that. It feels like, and then, the masked figure goes up, takes down the poker chip crowd does not react at all because everybody knows there's still another person to come. And then eventually the person comes, he's wearing, it was kind of the night King mask from game of Thrones. I don't know if there was a Warner brothers connection and it was really close. I don't know if it was exactly that, but it looked really close, but like it was, I was just like, why there was zero reaction for any of this. Because it, the match was still going on. He Stokely handed him. Why even do it like that? Like, why did they come out dressed in black? He's Stokely Hathaway's been wearing a suit everywhere. He hasn't been hiding himself. Couldn't even figure out exactly who everybody was because it all happened so quickly. And then you're just like, okay. And then a lot of people note, hey, that guy in the mask did a lot of mannerisms like MJF. I wonder if that'll come into play later. But, like, this was a sloppy match with a result that got no reaction yeah, and ignoring what happens at the end of the show, which we'll get to in a second, this was just a complete mess and completely convoluted and overbooked the way AW always does see certain things. And that was very frustrating. Right now in a situation like this, you do need to see, well, what's going to happen here with this right before you can find, give your overall evaluation. And we're definitely going to get to that. So we will in a moment, but quickly when this all happened, my initial thought, seeing the mask, hearing the track. It was Wyndham Rotunda, Bray Wyatt. Uh, But as the person started walking to the ring, I was like, well, unless Bray lost, you know, a third to half of his body weight and sincerely, severely uh, trimmed himself down, you know, it's not him. The other option was maybe someone would be under the mask to make you believe it's not him. And then when the person actually reveals himself, it's a bigger person and it is him. So I kept going back and forth on what it could be. But when they posted the video on Twitter in between the matches, I watched it a second time and I tweeted this. So I'm laying it out here as well. The mannerisms entering the ring, the protruding butt. (laughs) I hate to say it about another dude. Hey now, but it's true. Uh, The expensive shoes. All I could think when I saw it was, wow, that's MJF. So that's where I landed with a hope and an expectation. And I did believe the reveal would come at the end of the show and they would not save it to dynamite. We'll talk about whether they did in a moment. Um, But that was my final take as I waited for the rest of the show to unfold. 
Yeah, it was a really lackluster start, and I just th- th- you could have just done that so many different ways. Like, I there's so many questions. I know we'll get answers on dynamite, but like, why did Stokely have to go pull it down? Like, have the Joker pull it down? Like, it was just it was weird, and that's I think part of the reason nobody reacted. It was just very very strange setup. Sure. Uh, so let's get to the main event of the show. The AEW Championship was on the line. John Moxley against CM Punk. Punk did a parking lot interview saying he's never been 100% entering a match, but that Mox just wasn't just fighting him. He was fighting the entire city, and then he called out some more local Chicago spots that were meant to pop the fans. The main event started at 11.32 p.m. I just wanted to note that on the East Coast. Uh, Punk offered his leg at the bell. Mox gave him a double bird and sat in a pipe bomb stance. Punk hit the roundhouse kick that stunned Mox. He came back with two pump knees and Mox's hammer elbows before hitting go to sleep, but Mox kicked out at 2.9. So they did a purposeful fake callback to what happened two weeks ago, and they did all of it two minutes into the match. They fought into the crowd and back. There were surprisingly dual chants, some people chanting for Mox. Punk bladed six minutes into the match for a crimson mask. Mox licked the blood. The wound was gushing. Mox targeted it for a while. Then he tried to submit Punk which was broken with a rake of the eyes. Mox put him in the figure four, so Punk spit in his face and gave him the double bird. Mox had a pile driver for a 2.8. Mox caught Punk's flying elbow, countering that into a rear naked choke. Punk countered out with Mox countering back into the bulldog choke, but Punk broke it. Um, Then he kicked Mox with his injured foot and didn't sell it. Mox finally worked the foot with an ankle lock after 16 minutes. So we're 16 minutes into the match. He finally does something with the foot. Then he flipped off the crowd. Punk hit another roundhouse kick. Mox came back with a lariat. They countered finishers. Mox caught Punk's leg during a GTS attempt and kicked him in the knee before hitting Death Rider for a 2.9 false finish. Punk rolled through a bulldog choke and caught Mox with a GTS. Mox's body bounced backwards off the rope and collapsed onto Punk's back. So he stood up lifting Mox a second time and hitting another GTS to win the title in 20 minutes. Now, this match went mostly as expected, other than the fact that Punk is the one who bladed and it wasn't Mox. Uh, It was exceptionally slow and pretty uneventful to start, but it did pick up down the stretch. The finish with the double GTS, I thought was exceptional. Very smart. Never really seen anything like that. All in all, it was a worthy main event and the right winner won given the storyline. The right person won given the storyline. But it did not save the storyline or any of the TV booking. It just followed through with it. The biggest issue is Punk never once sold the foot during the match. And Mox, who knows the foot is hurt and gave the whole speech about Punk not being ready to come back and all this, he barely worked the foot. This is, you take, this is where you put the foot under the steel steps and you stomp on them. You do the ankle lock, not 16 minutes into the match four minutes into the match. And you do it over and over again. You stomp on the foot. You punch it. You do. You hit it with the ropes. You do whatever you can to make that foot hurt so much that Punk has to sell it. Except he didn't, and Punk never sold it. So after collapsing and crying in pain, two weeks later, the foot is a total non-issue. He's running, jumping. He's not limping or selling. If the foot wasn't going to factor in, the dynamite booking was even more absurd than it already was when we thought about it. Taking that out of the equation, the lack of continuity to the actual storyline, Punk won 
He's the first person to ever pin John Moxley clean, I believe, in AEW or I think maybe anywhere since he became John Moxley from Dean Ambrose. It was a very good and entertaining match. But because of all those issues, I couldn't go to the top level. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Some of you may think that's a little low, but I stand by that. So with the punk foot, my issue with it was what he said in the promo last week, which was that he's fine and he's 100% and he's cleared. This after clearly the foot was hurting him in the match he got squashed by Moxley. I never understood what he was trying to say at that moment last week. So I'm, I guess I'm fine with the foot not factoring in because I, it was supposed to be 100%. At least that's what he told us. So I, that, that, was, that was weird. Look, overall, this match was good. I, I, I liked it. It, it. it felt big. Everything worked. I did like that finishing bit with Moxley on his back. It was a nice little segment, and, and, and that all worked. Um, very, very solid match. B plus, A minus type range. Great stuff. It just goes back to what we said before about and look punk had to win this this is what i said in the preview was that you can't squash him two weeks ago and then do the rocky three story and then he loses like that right. so it, it was it was the result we needed and that's fine i just still feel like the last two weeks were a complete waste of time we didn't need to do any of that if this had just been title versus title unification main aw championship this feels like an even bigger match going in punk wins and like, we're fine. I, I don't understand why we spent the last two weeks having to have Punk come back from apparently his foot being 100% when in, instead of just having Moxley and Punk continue to get into it with each other even more and bring up the stakes of this match. So like, I just think like if you had done this exact thing pretty much without what happened two weeks ago, I think I'd be even rating it higher. I just, I yes. thought it, it, it just, it took away from that, from that stupid decision they made two weeks ago. But that's the past, the past. I thought this was a very good match. It was the right winner. You had plans with Punk for the summer when he won the belt. It makes sense for him to be the guy to get the belt, and you kind of move forward with what you were planning to do already. Maybe. We'll talk about that. But um, it, this all made sense. This was, this, was, this was fine. Absolutely. So, yeah, like I said, worthy main event. That's the best way to yes. put it. It was worthy of the spot it got. So after the bell, a couple minutes later, uh, the lights went out completely. And all of a sudden, over the PA, we hear Tony Khan's voice. And it's a voicemail that he left for someone. And it's very clear by what he's saying that he's talking to MJF. He's telling MJF that he's screwing over the company and the fans by having left AEW. And he said, if you come back, I promise to give you a raise. I will not force you to sign a contract extension. So now they're, you know, working the shoot, I guess is the best way to put it. And he said, I'll even book you as the Joker in the casino ladder match if you come back, but this is your last opportunity. And if you don't take this offer, we're done working together. So suddenly a clip of CM Punk from Ring of Honor played with him saying the very trite line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making you believe in this case, he said that he didn't exist. Suddenly the screen goes to black. The masked character appears on the Tron with his back to the camera saying he was the devil himself. He removed the mask and threw a Burberry scarf over his neck before MJF's music played and he came out. MJF then cut off his own music, which was not the Stones. It was the original theme. Punk raised his title in the air. There was a good pop for MJF when he first came out, but a Big relatively pop. light chant when the chant did get going. MJF 
responded by giving the crowd double birds. And that was it. Literally, All Out ended at that point. The tease that commentary gave was, oh my God, tune into Dynamite for more, which you do want to do that. You do, of course, want to get your fans to watch the next TV show. And I thought, Chris, that this worked and it didn't. I loved the video package. Extremely well put together. The ROH clip was really smart. Tony's voicemail also filled in all of the obvious plot holes that I would have criticized. Like, why the hell MJF would be allowed in that match, given what he said and did to Tony and AEW? What kept my curiosity, though, is if Tony knew MJF was the final guy, he was the Joker, why was his name not announced when the Joker was announced to the ring? And why was everyone wondering who it was when the head booker knew the entire time? Uh, It was also smart, though, that AEW gave us this reveal on the show, yet still teased Dynamite. But despite all of that, again, I really liked the video package. I really liked the voicemail. The ultimate reveal himself uh, itself when he came out of the tunnel, it somehow was lackluster. I was just, I thought it was very surprising that it wasn't a bigger deal when I saw it. The crowd, it did pop, but it was shockingly quiet. You would expect MJF, wherever he returns, to blow the roof off any venue. And I just kept thinking, what would I have done if I was booking this? The Punk Mox match would have been on TV without any shenanigans. Then you do the Casino Battle Royal on the go-home dynamite. And the chip winner gets to immediately challenge Punk, in this case, the champion, at All Out. Punk accepts. The main event begins. MJF reveals himself. He takes off the mask. The crowd goes wild because MJF is now fighting Punk. He's a piece of shit going after the foot that maybe gets injured during the Mox match. And MJF wins the title in the main event of All Out. That is how you book this storyline if you want it to play out to get the biggest pops possible. Not the way Tony Khan did it. Now, I'm sure MJF is going to get a title match. He's probably going to win at Grand Slam in New York inside Arthur Arthur Ashe Stadium. And that'll be really cool if they do that. But while I did like this, it fell short of me loving it. That's the best way I can put it. We often, you and I often agree on a lot of our takes of AEW. And that's sometimes unfortunate because I I think um, there are a lot of people who absolutely loved that MJF reveal. And that's okay. Like, we, we can disagree on these things. I'm just very much with you on this point. I wouldn't have booked it the way you said it. I think when you have a big pay-per-view, you don't want to kind of, I, I don't know. But the way I think, you, it's just that my biggest issue with this was that it was, like a lot of things with AEW, way too convoluted and too much going on because you have to count what happened in the, in the Casino Battle Royal match. You're like, Stokely Hathaway's involved. Tony Con- Tony Khan is letting him in we're, we're doing this via voicemail with no screen like that's how we're explaining that away i'm glad they mentioned it but the way i would have just done it was you you do the ladder match the way you did you let the joker mass joker take down the chip instead of Stokely hathaway punk wins lights go out lights go on you've got the masked person sitting there yes pipe bomb style st- st- standing on the stage looking at him He starts to pull off the mask. Lights go off again. Then MJF's music hits. And the crowd, wow, lights turn on. MJF is standing right there. 
it's just a tweak. It's just that was just a tweak from what they did. MGF did get a very big pop. It, it was a solid pop, not as big as it could have been if you did it a better way, because they kind of like slowly reveal these things instead of just giving you the boom moment like they did with Adam Cole, like they did with Dan or Brian Danielson a year ago. And that way you'd be like, wait, did did how did Tony let him back? Was this Stokely Hathaway's doing? He got it around Tony. He's going to be pit. Like then there's like more intrigue. Like we just kind of brushed the Tony thing away. Cause he was like, I need you back for whatever reasons. I'll give you some money and sure. So, so he won, but he wins via being put in the match. If Tony knows he's in the ladder match, shouldn't Tony be promoting that MJF is on the show? You would think like, so. that's his, that's yep. his job. That's why it's just, I think it was a little too convoluted and a couple of tweaks could have made this, I think, really, really... It, it was fine. It was fine. It was not bad. It was a lot better than the Kenny Omega return a couple weeks ago, which I really hated the way they did that, doing his entrance via jokey bit. This was okay. It was not as good as it could have been, and it didn't take much changing to make it really good. And I always have issues with AW frequently missing the moment when it comes to the big moments, not yep. landing it with the full punch. Like we often see WWE do for all the problems WWE has, they generally hit you with the big moments. AW still can't quite do that. And it's frustrating that I think takes the company, keeps the company from, from getting a little bit bigger. It's still kind of in this world where it is and it's doing big things for the people in that world and not outside of that. I'm excited MJF is back. It is kind of weird. We're going right back to MJF Punk when Punk won a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. I thought MJF should have won that feud, but this dude is the biggest star in your company now, or he will be. He's the future of the company MJF is. He's been a star since the very first AEW show when he was in, I think, a battle royal. And I tweeted it at that time. I said, this MJF guy's got something. This guy's going to be a star. And it's his time to be champion. We'll we'll talk more later on the whole storyline around all the MJF stuff. Um, but we will. This was okay. It should have been better. Uh, I liked where you were going with your uh, booking the damn territory a little bit. What I would have done is if your scenario, he's on the screen, the lights turn out. He's in the ring, sitting pipe bomb style with the mask on. Punk sits pipe bomb style. MJF takes off the mask. Huge pop. Yeah, that's fine. That's, Massive. It's a lot going. It's a lot going on there. But I like the 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 the, mo- the moment that worked for this MJF return was when his music hit, and the right. crowd went big for that. Right. That's the moment you need. That's like, like, and I'm, I'm glad, by the way, he didn't use the Rolling Stones song again. I'm sure Tony Khan doesn't want to pay that much for a Rolling yeah, Stones sure song every really single time. Yeah. But that's okay, because NJF's theme rules, and I'm glad he's apparently keeping it. I agree with that completely. All right, let's move off of this. I'm sure we'll have plenty more to talk about this on the next AEW show, which is Thursday here on the Getting Over wrestling podcast we have a lot more matches to talk about there there is one other punk thing do we want to talk about the cm punk press conference right now or do i mean you you tell me i mean i haven't really been able to see it or hear it so you tell me what you're seeing so as we were getting ready to record and as we kind of started is when you may have seen it or heard it by now but cm punk went completely off in his press conference the first question he gets asked is about colt cabana and he just goes after colt cabana uh, says he's not his friend. They haven't been friend for 10 years. Starts swearing, doing all these other things. I'm going through the thing right now. He, CM Punk says he paid for all Colt Cabana's fees on things. He has the receipts, whatever. Punk blames the EVPs for planting the story about 
possibly Punk getting Colt Cabana moved to Ring of Honor. He says, quote, they should have fucking known better. He shits on Adam Page for, I guess, going into business on himself of one of the promos during their feud, saying that Punk and Hangman are, quote, far beyond apologies, and that Hangman jeopardized a million-dollar house i'm not quite sure what exactly he means by that uh, like punk gate, continues like, to, like for um, yeah right right but i'm not sure like what that did did it mean punk was gonna no show or something because he said that i don't know punk continued to shut on cole cabana for a lot of things um says there's a lot of drama backstage uh keeps going after the evps saying they tried to fuck him over by planting stories with their internet friends and uh yeah so i don't think we're getting cm punk kenny omega anytime soon <laughs> either uh yeah i saw a couple of clips it's pretty wild but in for a lot of AEW fans this is now the biggest story coming out of the show it's not the mjf cm punk he's thing. totally so like, put it, he made it about himself again he made it about himself and tony Khan was sitting right there during this press conference so this i gotta, I don't I know, gotta man. say man i like i don't want to i don't want to be one of those guys that like shits on tony Khan and this and that but like the way he handles media is so poor and it's from what I understand, it's going back to Fulham, um, you know, his his time being the public face of that team, uh, Fulham FC, the, the soccer club, the football club. I'm sorry. Um, like from responding on Twitter to the WWE bot mentions of which he's shown no proof to not reacting extremely poorly to any criticism of the women's division to stuff like this, where he, CM Punk is doing all of this. And I I. Haven't seen, I haven't heard any of the video, but I've been playing some muted while we're talking and he's just sitting there smiling while Punk takes what, you know, is one of your four pay-per-views of the entire year and makes it all about his personal grudges, not MJF, not the match, not the storyline or any of that shit. He's just going off and making it selfishly all about himself. And I don't think it's a work shoot like the MJF stuff was. And even the MJF stuff, we don't know how much of it was a work shoot like from the beginning. I believe it's a shoot that turned into a work here. I mean, if they're trying to work shoot again, it's not working on me. Like I don't care. I think this is despicable. And if it's just a shoot, then holy shit, this is a terrible look for your new champion with you as the head of the company, the lead creative guy, the owner sitting right there and just, letting it fucking happen. That is a horrendous look for him and for AEW. Yeah, Yeah, look, like, Tony, you're the boss, man. Like, you got to kind of keep your guys in line. You you just had a talent meeting like a week or two ago about things, and now you've got CM Punk saying there's a lot of bad drama backstage. That's not good. Also, Kevin Owens tweeted a picture of him and Stone Cold Steve Austin as this was going on, a a, a not-so-subtle wink as to why he resigned with WWE. Uh, and seems to be very much enjoying that. So, yeah, like, again, like I said, Punk made it about himself, and Despicable. Tony Khan let him, and now this is going to be the number one thing people are talking about instead of the show, which I think is not what you want if you're AEW. So that's that. One other thing I forgot to say about the MJF return, I didn't like him flipping off the crowd. I yeah, guess he's going to be yeah. he's going to be a heel, I guess. The crowd was chanting for him. This is a Chicago crowd chanting for MJF. And like they were going to get behind him. I thought this was the moment. Instead, at the end, he flips them all off. So I guess he's the bad guy again. We're going to be cheering him, especially after this punk press well, conference. So I don't know. Well, he's going to be a baby face in Long Island if they do that. Yes. Um, yep. At the Arthur yep. Ashe Stadium. So maybe he's flipping off the Chicago crowd because it's not there. 
Uh, maybe what CM Punk. I'm just saying, read the moment, man. They're cheering for you. Like, no, I, don't, I, know. I don't know. But maybe what's like, look, like if, if we play it out and we give them the benefit of the doubt here, like, again, I, don't, I wouldn't like this. I'm just saying. Maybe the goal is for MJF to be a face uh, in Long Island and CM Punk is doing this, even though he won and was a baby face in front of the crowd. Now he's turning online sentiment in the IWC against him and becoming a heel, which would then begin that reaction Wednesday on Dynamite. I'm really like doing convoluted logic to try to make this entire thing make sense. And I'm really struggling. So look, we have, Chris, we could talk about this for an hour. We really could. We're 37 minutes or so into the show, probably a little less. Um, And we got 14 more matches for AEW plus NXT Worlds Collide. So we do need to move on. There's a lot left to talk about, but don't doubt we will double back to this on our Thursday AEW and NXT show. This will get addressed again before this week is out. Let's move on to the other major title match on the show, the Interim Women's Championship. Tony Storm, Britt Baker, Jamie Hayter, and Akara Shida in a fatal four-way. Perhaps AEW doesn't put this in the co-main event. The Silver King puts it in the co-main event of our instant analysis. Hayter was the only one, the only one fans cared about to start this match, and she was pretty much the only one they cared about throughout the entire match. She got a couple of chants. There were multiple moments booked that were meant to pop the fans, like Tony Storm and Akara Shida standing across from each other. They got polite cheers, if anything. Rebel ran in to stop Sheeta and Storm from fighting for a completely unknown reason. She ate a double headbutt. Sheeta was carried to the stage and hit with a stomp before Baker threw her kendo stick on her prone body. Trainers came out. Storm got choked by a tag team rope with no referee watching. Sheeta then returned very quickly with two kendo sticks and beat the heels with them. She suplexed Baker with her feet nailing Hater, then superplexed Hater from the ring apron off the middle rope. There was a great Falcon Arrow before Hater grabbed Storm out of a pin and hit her with a tombstone pile driver. Baker hit her swinging neckbreaker and another stomp on Sheeta for a close finish before getting her glove. Hater hit Sheeta with a ripcord lariat for a would-be pinfall, but Baker pulled the referee out of the ring. Hater screamed at her for doing that. Storm then hit Hater with a spike pile driver. Baker covered for a 2.9 false finish. Baker then considered doing the lockjaw on Hater. She grabbed her hair in her hand, but Storm hit Baker with a DDT and then hit Hater with another one for the win to become the interim champion in 14 minutes. When I say the crowd was dead for this match, holy shit. This was a symptom of two things. Number one, AEW booking its women's division like absolute shit. And two, a pay-per-view that went on way too long and the crowd was absolutely exhausted. The Hater-Baker stuff should have gotten massive heat. It didn't. Storm winning should have gotten a massive pop. Instead, it was moderate and cameras cut off for celebration after like 15 seconds. Yet despite all of that, the wrestling was very good. Super tough match to grade. I loved the storytelling with Hater and Baker, especially because Britt should now have a ready set storyline not involving a title. And that is very exciting. Storm was the right winner as you and I discussed. Hater is the future. She is one of the top three women in this division and she needs to get that title probably in the next 12 months, but Storm was the right winner here. I just couldn't get to four stars. There wasn't enough excitement and energy to the entire thing, but I went 3.75 stars and a B plus, and I very much enjoyed this match, more than the crowd did. Oh, yeah, obviously more than the crowd. Those women worked their asses off for a very, very solid match. This was the 11th match 
on the card, including the pre-show. And it came right after the AEW tag team match. It was very hot. So that was another reason why the crowd was completely dead. This got 14 minutes, 20 seconds. So like they got a good chunk of time, which was good. Tony Storm, the right winner, like we said. This was booked really well. The Britt Baker, Jamie Hayter stuff was really interesting. With the crowd clearly already behind Jamie Hayter, she's naturally the face to go into a Britt Baker feud. That will be good to kind of have some actual more women storylines going on. And so that's great. I just kind of like you said, camera's cutting away from Tony quickly. Like they do this a lot. Like a match ends and you don't really get to breathe the let it breathe a little bit. Let everybody kind of experience Tony Storm winning. On the other hand, the crowd didn't really care all right. that much. So right. maybe there was nothing really to do with that. But that's good. Happy for Tony. She needs to do it. She's a star. Hopefully she can help elevate the women's division in a way that hasn't been done before, that Tony Khan hasn't really done before. And speaking of Tony Storm, she did say in the press conference, apparently, um, Thunder Rosa says she's injured. Okay. <laughs> So she, uh, there may or may not be some more hard feelings around Thunder Rosa or so she's not. Like questioning whether that's real. Amazing. That's at least how the tweet read. Um, it, it, it says, quote, Thunder says she's injured and gotcha. says when she says she's not injured, we'll they fight. can wrestle yeah. and that'll be the end of that. So yep. maybe some shade. I will tell you, I've received numerous DMs and I'm trying not to get into it. Uh, I've received numerous DMs about this press conference absolutely embarrassing. What is Tony Khan doing sitting next to him? AEW looks terrible as a promotion. This is the most embarrassed I've been to be an AEW fan. Like these are just some of the tweets and DMs I'm getting. So uh, I wish I was watching it live. We had to do the instant analysis here. We will talk more about that press conference, media scrum, whatever you want to call it on Thursday show. I will watch the entire thing. Uh, Let's move to the trios championship match, the finale of this tournament. Uh, on Rampage, Best Friends fought Dark Ordered. Hangman Page got the hot tag. He had a moonsault outside and Deadeye and Orange Cassidy. There was a Storm Zero outside. Chuck Taylor hit John Silver with an awful waffle inside. Hangman got caught with Orange Punch. Silver rolled up Taylor for the win. Don Callis backstage confronted Hangman, suggesting he screwed over the Elite and wrestled in the tournament when he said he wouldn't. It was a fine match. Nothing that got me particularly excited. I know you don't watch Rampage. So we'll move into the match. Trios Championship. The Elite against Dark Order with Hangman Page, as we suspected it would be. This was the second match on the card. Omega got a very extended entrance announcement. Page and Omega had a standoff that popped the crowd big. John Silver went on his crazy run. Omega ran through everyone with Snapdragons. Dark Order did their usual speed run sequence for a near fall. Omega killed Silver with a V-trigger, hit a big Tope Con Hero. The Elite accidentally kicked Matt Jackson uh, when a move got reversed. Hangman wiped out Nick with a moonsault outside. Dark Order hit the pendulum bomb before Nick broke the fall with a senton bomb. Omega and Paige faced off when Rick Knox, for the first time in his entire (laughs) career as a referee, at least in AEW, decided, now I'm going to enforce tagging rules. You guys can't hit each other unless you're tagged in. So they dragged their legal partners to the respective corners, tagged themselves in, and battled. Omega hit Tiger Driver 98. Page came back with a Spanish fly style fallaway slam off the top rope. Hangman caught Omega with a buckshot lariat from behind. Then they called back to the Omega Page Young Bucks finish with a hesitation buckshot. Omega collapsed to avoid it. And Nick hit Hangman with his own move, followed by a BTE trigger for a false finish. Hangman collapsed to avoid a V trigger. And then John Silver nearly beat Omega with a pinning combination, though I thought Hangman was legal, so I don't know if he did tag out 
I'm going to assume that he did. Silver tried to do Brody Lee's finisher, but Omega countered with a V-trigger. Then Silver countered the one-winged angel into an inside cradle type move for an incredible 2.99 false finish. Silver held Omega so Hangman could hit a buckshot lariat, but Omega ducked away. Hangman drilled Silver with it, and then Omega pinned Silver for the win. This was tremendous. But halfway through, I was like, man, this is kind of indulgent. It's really typical of an AEW tag team match. But as soon as Omega and Hangman went head to head, the entire thing turned on a dime. As Jim Ross would say, business picked up. The late storytelling and the finishing sequence were top tier. The only thing I missed is, again, I thought Hangman was still legal. I presume Silver tagged in, so I'm not going to like downgrade it. The false finishes with Silver nearly pinning Omega, they popped me and worked me not once, but twice. I think you all know, listening to this, I am not a Young Bucks fan, but holy shit, did I love this match. I went 4.5 stars and an A. I'm going to rewatch it. I wouldn't be surprised if I give it another quarter star. This was fantastic. Yeah, this was at least an A match, 4.5. This is honestly the Young Bucks at their best when they're doing these matches that do have storyline to them. And it's not just about spots, like when they do Lucha Bros type matches. Those are the matches people remember. This is actually when they're at their best. This was an amazing match. I said it on the Ultimate Preview. I said it on our Twitter spaces. I'm so glad that John Silver and Alex Reynolds got this spotlight. Those guys have been real. Those guys are really good. And they finally got this stage in a trios championship pay-per-view up against the young bucks to really show out and look like they belong in there. And they absolutely did the, the, the two silver uh, false finish pinning combinations really got me too. like, there's that split second in my head where I go, Oh man, they really did it. They really let the dark order get the first trios championship twice. They, they totally got me. There mm-hmm. were some, Excellent, excellent, excellent 2.99 kickouts, honestly, on this entire card, but especially in this match. Um, uh, going back to oh, also Omega not having the uh, shirt on and the brace and whatever. Yeah, it he, mattered. He looked, it, he looks awesome. It, dude, dude it, looks that mattered incredible. so much. It was like the yes. it was somehow like the first time we've seen Kenny Omega, even though the guys already had two great matches. Yes. And this is so weird. Yeah. yeah. And so it's great to see that he apparently doesn't need it. I don't know if with each match he was just shedding more and more of it, but he looked awesome. It's he's good to go like that. That's awesome and really great. So that is good to see. Um, One thing about the production that I was going to bring up here, when they call back to the Kenny Omega hangman match, when Matt Jackson gave him the nod and this time he gives Mm -hmm. him the no, the camera was positioned behind Matt. So you, if you didn't like get the reference, you didn't know what really was good. You thought he was just kind of standing there. You didn't really totally know what was going on. They kind of missed that. But this was awesome. Like this was everything this needed to be. The trios titles feel like a big deal now. This is a this is the kind of match I might go back and watch for sure. Yeah, this is one of those AEW matches where I'm like, you know what? I need to see that again. It really, and I don't feel that way a lot because again, a lot of it's just super spotty and it's just like oh i've seen him mm-hmm. and i don't really need to experience it a second time i will go back and watch this there's not even a question about it yeah it, uh, this isn't this isn't false finish on oh my god they did a crazy move oh my god he kicked out this is a false finish of oh man the dark order is actually gonna win right. oh no they yeah. didn't it, it, though, it when it works you uh, when a false finish works you yes. that's when it's great when it's over indulgent like i mean you can yeah. even say look i love 
Johnny Gargano and Adam Cole, but like that takeover <laughs> New York, that takeover New York match, I was there live. At some point, you're just like, all right, just finish the match. You know? Yeah. And there's a lot of Young Bucks matches that are like that. This was yeah. not that. This was very yeah. well done. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, Brian Danielson fought Chris Jericho on Rampage. Jericho was talking shit about Danielson on commentary right as the show ended. So Brian came up to confront him and nothing happened. Anyway, let's go to All Out. Danielson made his entrance after some dude that <laughs> I can only describe. He looked like a mix of Machine Gun Kelly and someone from a 90s boy band. That's what he looked like. A Darby he, Allen kind of. Someone said he was Machine Gun Kelly Darby Allen. He, he sang Danielson's entrance. It was incredibly odd at the show to this point was already off the rails, but this was odd. Commentary said they're friends, which made it even stranger. Tony's like, yeah, let your weird friend sing a song in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and, and you guys thought Tyson Fury singing at the end of Clash of the Castle was weird. This was just as weird. Anyway, Daniel Garcia watched from backstage. Jericho hit the vintage springboard dropkick. He countered a Hurricanrana attempt off the ropes into walls of Jericho. Great spot. Brian hit a tope suicida through the corner. Danielson stopped the lion salt with double knees before Jericho countered into a tombstone pile driver and hit the lion salt himself. Brian also did a diving headbutt, which love him. Stop doing that move. You don't need to do it. Way too dangerous. Yep. Uh, Jericho caught Danielson off the ropes with a code breaker. Then he locked in a perfect lion tamer. Uh, my favorite of any of his submissions, by the way. Uh, Brian came back with the psycho knee, but Jericho got his shoulder up. Brian then moved into cattle mutilation twice, but Jericho found the ropes both times. Brian caught him with a huge forearm and the hammer elbows, but Jericho caught Brian with a low blow hidden from the referee. Then he hit Judas effect and won in 24 minutes. Garcia put his hand over his face backstage watching on the monitor. The rest of JAS celebrated, uh, running out to, you know, cheer with Jericho. Later backstage, Garcia said Jericho let him down by cheating. Jericho said Garcia would pay by not having him as backup in his ROH pure title match against Yuta on Dynamite. Jericho said he believed in Garcia. He knows he's going to win the match. He just wouldn't be there. The first takeaway here, Brian Danielson versus Chris Jericho on pay-per-view, and the crowd was freaking dead. Granted, this was not the most exciting match. It no, was really slow. <laughs> it was technical. Yeah. A lot of mat wrestling. But still, it's Brian Danielson and Chris Jericho. The expectation was Jericho would cheat at some point. I just didn't think it would lead to him winning. Danielson ate another loss. Jericho has now gone over Kingston and Brian, both really for no good reason, both extremely weird situations. Um, I presume the storyline is going to be Garcia flipping sides and then eventually beating Jericho clean down the road. And then Garcia has wins over Jericho and Brian and blah, blah, blah. If that's the direction they go, it does make sense. But if they run this back with Brian going over Jericho, it is really shitty booking. Again, I don't understand why in 2022, Jericho is going over Kingston and Brian, two of your fan favorites. Kingston never got retribution. Brian will find out if he ever does. We're going to have to see how this entire thing plays out. The match was good technically. It just lacked any juice. So I'm, I'm, I have a lot of this grade on here. 3.75 stars and a B plus. A really good match, just not excellent. It was the 13th match on a 15-match card. Yeah. And it was the longest match at 23 minutes, 40 seconds. Look, this thing was boring to me. It just was. It was a lot of submission, a lot of mat wrestling. And when you're on like hour four of the show, 
I ain't interested in that. And neither was the crowd. And like, so I was Jericho won. Both of these guys can lose and be fine. That's like, I was kind of more upset about Jericho beating Eddie Kingston back in the day. Was surprised. We did get no Daniel Garcia uh, come in. I I thought this was going to be that. So maybe they run it back in another time. They're going to drag this out again. Like they do a lot of these stories. They'll probably have some big dynamite show match somewhere. I don't know. I just, I don't have much more to say about this match other than I just generally kind of thought it was boring and I was surprised at the lack of, the lack of juice on the finish. Yeah. I promise you all the match breakdowns and our takes and everything are getting shorter. We're just covering the big stuff first. It will quicken up. Uh, the tag team championship match, Swerve in Our Glory against the Acclaimed on Rampage. There's a backstage interview confrontation that didn't really accomplish anything, but it did provide a bit of an angle for their match except they did it 48 hours before the bell, which was frustrating. So this match happened. Caster in his rap, he dissed Keith Lee by calling him Lizzo, which definitely hit him pretty hard. Uh, The champions had their backs turned, kind of ignoring the freestyle. Fans started chanting, oh, swerve in our glory. And then they converted it to, oh, scissor me daddy, which just outstanding. Okay, Chicago crowd, you were not great all night. You were incredible. In that moment, when they were on, they were they were great. They were. Yes, you're right. When they were on, they were phenomenal. And this this was maybe their highlight of the entire show in terms of the crowd adding to the atmosphere. Bowens fell off the middle rope and started selling an injured knee. He hit Lee with a flying blockbuster. Caster failed to lift Lee. Keith accidentally pounced swerve outside. Lee went into the ropes. The acclaimed double suplexed him, uh, double superplexed him. Swerve tagged in blind, hitting the swerve stomp on Bowens for a false finish. Swerve quickly attacked the knee and put him in a single leg crab. Caster broke the submission with a flying kick. Swerve came back with a head kick for another near fall. Caster hit a draping mic drop from the top rope outside on Swerve. Great spot. Lee pounced Caster. Billy Gunn distracted Caster and hit Lee with an incredible Death Valley driver. Caster did. Huge pop on that move. Bowens then tagged in despite being injured, hitting a big move before Caster hit mic drop with Lee breaking the fall with a false finish. Swerve caught Caster with a Death Valley driver on the apron. That basically eliminated him from the match. Bowens fell off Lee's shoulders with Swerve kicking Lee in the head for another false finish. Bowens then hit Swerve with a draping crossroads and tried to poison Rana on Lee, but he got twisted on his shoulders. Lee twisted him around and the champions combined for the falling double stomp powerbomb to retain the titles. I don't have match time on this, but it was long and good. After the bell, Lee offered scissors to Billy who accepted it. Then he offered it to the acclaimed. They didn't take it. And Swerve looked at Keith really odd and he dipped out of the ring before he did. This match, I swear, it went from zero to 60 with the quickness. Like I was remarking to myself and I think I even texted you. I was like, damn, this show is boring. Like things that were happening were boring. And I just thought this match needed to end and we needed to move on. And suddenly they did the double superplex and the entire match turned on its head. It was like a and totally it, different match. And I sent you a scissor emoji. Uh, you did. Emoji. You sent me a scissor emoji. Uh, the acclaimed were over as hell to this point. The champions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. were like they were faces, but they started during the match getting booed like heels. And some of what they did with the boos in the background started seeming heelish. My hope is that AEW actually uses this reaction to turn them heel. Because I actually, in retrospect, like thinking back on it, I would buy Swerve in Our Glory and get more excited about them as heels, especially if FTR or potentially the acclaimed in a rematch 
end up winning the titles off them. I think it would make them more interesting. This was a really good look for the acclaimed overall. It definitely elevated them. You were singing their praises mm. on the ultimate preview. <laughs> the only annoyance I had was there were way too many spots in this match where Lee and Swerve accidentally took each other out. It happened like five yeah. times in one match, and it never happened once with the acclaimed. It was super, super repetitive. It's definitely an A match. I was before between a 4-5 and a 4-2-5. I compared it to the trios match. I didn't think it was as good as that. But while I'm breaking it down and I'm talking about it and I'm getting excited talking about it, I'm thinking maybe it was the same. So I went 4-2-5 NNA, but I'm going to rewatch this and the trios match and I might upgrade both of them. This was great. This is every this was everything I said in the ultimate preview about what the acclaimed are and what they can be. This is what you said you hoped they can yes, be. They have the not point been where they get to. And it got to the point where after the match, I saw a ton of people on my timeline saying the wrong team won. And you know who also maybe thinks the wrong team won? Tony Khan, who teased in his press conference that there may be a rematch at Grand Slam. Yeah, they'll change the which, yeah. <laughs> which tells me he thinks, ah, oh, shit, we probably should have the acclaimed one because they're crazy over now. Yep. And... You know, we, we the issue with the acclaimed was always, hey, they're just the raps. They're just kind of a gimmick. They're funny. We haven't seen them wrestle at that level where you can believe they're champions. This match accomplished that. Yeah. Max Caster lifting up Keithley and suplexing him was an incredible spot that tells you, all right, like these are dudes. These are guys you Death can Valley take seriously. Driver. But yes, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. That you can take seriously. In the in terms of the wrestling, and that's great. I think these guys are going to rock it up now after this, and I think everybody kind of saw what they were. The scissor stuff is incredibly weird, but incredibly funny. Billy Gunn, Scissor Me Daddy, all this stuff like it just works. And I, I, I said on the preview, like every the last handful of AW shows I'd go to, the acclaimed were like the most over thing in the company, and now that you throw this on top of that. I really think I'm saying it again, like they can be tag team champs and I think they should be pretty soon here. Maybe we end up getting that one comment about the pre-match uh, confrontation interview, whatever. There was a really good line in there that you didn't mention, which was Swerve basically says we're stone and gravel and rock beats scissor. So I thought that, oh, was, that, I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was a really good line. I like so I, I said that. And one other thing I want to change was you mentioned it. Keith Lee and Swerve as heels is something you could buy and you think could really work. Yeah. When Keith Lee offered the scissor and Billy Gunn went to do it, Keith Lee, I think, you know, you don't want to change what the story is, but I think it would have been great if he pulled back. When, when no, no, what should have when, happened is Swerve should have when Billy Gunn, when Billy Gunn goes to do it, Keith Lee pulls back like a like a fake handshake and then like do that adds to the heel heat mm -mm. and then go away. They wrestled that second half of that match like heels. Keith Lee, they, they knew they had to. Keith Lee sticks it out. Swerve knocks his hand away and pulls him out of the ring. He says that's not maybe what we're, but, that's but, what we're but about. That's get, we're right. Like, but know. that that gets you toward the Keith Lee Swerve breakup, which may happen as opposed to the Keith Lee and Swerve as heels. So. Right, that's my problem with it. I'd prefer them staying together as heels than breaking up. Right. They've been right. teasing the breakup for since before they even won the titles. I mean, it's anyway. It's absolutely the, the, crazy. The, acclaim, the acclaimed are the real deal, and I'm I'm hopeful uh, that I've I've almost gotten you to come around on that. Like, no, no, no like it's LA not an night. almost. It's not an almost. I've come around, and right. but but I but you have to. I hope that you agree 
What I said in our ultimate preview was not wrong. To that point, the acclaimed were not a team. I mean, you could root for them and say, hey, it would be great for them to be tag team champions. But given the level of tag team in AEW and all the options for champions, who either haven't won the titles or should be the champions um, or would do a great job with the champions, the acclaimed to the point of, you know, Wednesday night, once Dynamite went off the air, they were not a team where you said, oh, they have to be champions. Like, uh, oh my God, they're such good wrestlers and they're going to put on banger matches. They weren't that. They just weren't. Are they good on the mic? Yeah. Are they exciting and entertaining? Absolutely. This proved they're deserving of that. Now I'm agreeing with you where I say, hey, yeah, you're right. They are a great tag team. They do deserve to be champions. But coming into this, I didn't feel that way. They changed my mind by accomplishing what they accomplished on this show. It's a great development, for sure. It's a great development. Uh, Jungle Boy Jack Perry had a match with Christian Cage. By the way, he was announced as that, so that seems to be his name now. Uh, Christian got slapped by Jack's mom before the match. Jungle Boy came out the babyface tunnel. And he looked behind him wondering, hey, where's my buddy, Luchasaurus? Only to realize Luchasaurus walked out of the heel tunnel. Luchasaurus immediately chokeslammed Jungle Boy into a steel grate, left huge marks on his back. Then he carried him to the ring for a powerbomb through that table that's always there. Rather than cancel the match, Aubrey Edwards allowed Jack to approve ringing the bell, which is stupid, but it is a wrestling trope. It happens every brand all the time. Uh, Christian speared him for a false finish. Then hit kill switch for the win in 30 seconds. Luchasaurus then lifted Christian on his shoulders. Allow me to start by saying, Chris, I believe I had that. I literally nailed this booking. So I'm going full Barry Horowitz here. On its own, this was fine booking. I loved the camera work. Luchasaurus coming out of the heel tunnel. That was so smart. That was a really nice touch to this entire thing that I didn't expect. But given this was one of two matches that were squashes on the show, and one of four matches that were five minutes or less. I know we're complaining that there's 50 matches on the card, but if you're booking a match, you give your viewers and your people that bought your show a match. It was one of four matches that were under five minutes. It was under one minute and it was a squash. It's really frustrating, especially because it was the last out of that entire group. I suppose the idea is Jungle Boy will come back more serious and an even bigger face. They did introduce him by the full name, as I said but I'm not quite sure why they felt booking it that way was necessary after what has already been such a long build to this match, just to get to this point. How much longer is this going to go? Is he really going to be more over a month or two from now? I just really don't see it. Yeah, uh, we we did, you did, and then you convinced me to change my pick because I had forgotten Luchasaurus existed. We both basically said, yeah, Luchasaurus is going to turn on Jungle Boy Jack Perry and cost him the match because, hey, he'd come back, but it never explained anything either way. And we still don't have any explanation either way of what Luchasaurus is doing. He's so a lot of people say he's kind of in Kane Big Show territory at this much. If you're just going to flip him back and forth like this, not great. I was honestly fine. This was short because it was still like there was there were four matches left when this was going to start. And I was like, we're going to have another two hours of the show. How is this supposed to happen? So when he got beat up at the beginning, I was like, oh, cool. This is going to be short and we can move on. It was short. It needed to be because the show was too damn long. You could have just. That's not, not a good excuse the... though, man. No, what you do is you don't book a 15 match card is what you don't do. Right. But I, as a viewer was perfectly fine moving past this. Cause I was like, I just want to get to CM Punk. Moxley. Well, I, again, I, 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 I like the booking in a vacuum. Like I, I, the yeah, idea of it right. was really good. And 
having Luchasaurus do it that way, the camera work, all of that was really smart. But like when you are already having three short matches slash squashes on the show, and this is your fourth one, it's just like, all right, enough. Yeah. It's like enough already. We already yep. did this. And if you're yeah, going to do this, and if there's a reason, there's rumors that Christian may, may be injured, so they had to do this. If you're going to do that, then the other matches you don't do that with. Right. Look, and there were a lot of stuff in the show where it's like, d- does it feel like any of it's connected whatsoever? There were two matches in a row we got a Tombstone Piledriver in. Like, it, it was <laughs> right. just, it, there was, there was, it's a lot of just kind of disconnecting. It doesn't all flow yeah. well. Overall, I don't know what happens with this. This thing has kind of been dead for a while. I Do we do Jungle Boy Luchasaurus next if Christian is hurt? Maybe. I just want to know what the fuck Luchasaurus is thinking. This has been like months, weeks, Well, I told months? you that's, see, that's what I said in the ultimate preview. The whole, the storyline is he never did turn back to Jungle Boy's side. He's been right. under Christian's employ or uh, he did, brainwashing. Right. He, but he didn't, he, didn't expl- he didn't explain why he turned. He didn't explain why he well, turned back. Well, that's the problem. Are we going to explain? Yeah. Like, we're just, we got to get this. We the problem get, is it was talk. never explained why he aligned with Christian in the first place. And we still yeah. don't know why. Maybe they will now yeah. explain it because Jungle Boy, you presume, is going to be out for a period of time. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe both of them will be out for a period of time. All right. We got a lot more to get to. Uh, Miro, Darby Allen, and Sting fought House of Black. House of Black had a really inventive entrance. Miro stood them down one on three in the ring. Miro and Malachi Black stood off before the bell. And you could tell that they expected a really big pop, but nothing happened. The crowd didn't react at all. A Miro hot tag was missed by the referee. Sting and Malachi then did a standoff. That got a pop because it was Sting. He did the Scorpion death uh, lock on Malachi and no sold kicks from Brody King and Buddy Matthews. Sting hit Brody with the Scorpion death drop. Darby added a coffin drop, but Buddy broke the fall. Then he slugged Miro with Sting's bat. Darby hit Buddy with an up and over stunner and a cannonball tope suicida. Malachi then went to black mass Sting, but Sting spit mist in his face that you could not see until they did the replay. And then Malachi, when you actually saw the replay, he gave up on doing the kick before Sting even spit. So like he's turning his body and stops the kick without even knowing that someone had spit or anything. Anyway, Black gets missed in his face and... Darby catches him in a pinning combination. It was the seatbelt or something like that for the win in 12 minutes. It was a couple decent moments. It was a pretty bad match. I went 2.75 stars and a C plus. Not going to lie. I did not see this match because it was the end of Florida State LSU being a crazy finish. And I couldn't for some reason I couldn't pull up two things at the same time. Uh, So I picked House of Black to win this. They didn't win. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) I was kind of hoping they would. Um, did you, did you hear or see what Malachi Black did after the yeah, match? So Malachi, uh, taking the fall, it was interesting given all of the rumors about him wanting to leave AEW. He reportedly requested his release and Tony Khan denied it. By the way, isn't it ironic now AEW people are wanting releases and it's being denied and they're the bad guy, just like WWE used to be when in fact they're one and the same. It's just how it goes. Yeah, well, I, I, I've, I've been told uh, from CM Punk that there's apparently a lot of drama backstage. Oh, well, yeah, as, as we can tell. Uh, there were reports <laughs> that uh, he hugged House of Black, blew a kiss to the crowd, and bowed after the match he got an ovation. Now, we're, we're obviously going to find out more about this in the future. He could be gone. Maybe he got his release. Maybe he's sitting at home. I think he signed a five-year contract. Uh, he's at least taking time yes. off. It could potentially be for mental health. Apparently, it is not body health. There were rumors about a back injury. Um, Hurting him, he said he's recovered from that, and that's not an issue. So we're going to find out. Tony Khan was asked about it during the press conference, and he just gave a no comment. So yes, that's where we stand. 
Uh, let's go to Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs. On Rampage, Starks fought QT Marshall. They started brawling backstage into the crowd. Half of the match was during commercial. Starks eventually hit a spear off the ropes and Rochambeau for the win. I, I'm still not sure why Factory was part of this, but when Starks won on Rampage, I was like, you know, we both kind of thought maybe Powerhouse Hobbs is a good reason for him to win, but Starks is going to win because he's the star and he they're going to put him over because they're going to build him. But I, when this happened, I was like, well, they're giving him a win on the go-home show. Maybe that opens the door for Hobbs to actually win. Uh, Hobbs charged down after the bell and they beat on each other. Uh, hey now, until they were separated. So we'll get to all out. Hobbs completely dismantled Starks. He owned him for 98% of this match. Starks took damage to his previously injured neck and he lost after hit, getting hit with the spine buster. I actually loved the booking because it completely subverted expectations. We talked about how Hobbs really should be the one to win, but Starks was the bigger star and probably would win. But if you're going to do this, especially when you've already done the CM Punk John Moxley squash, and especially when you have the Christian Cage Jungle Boy squash coming up on the card and you have multiple short matches, you book it in a similar way, but you have Starks get like 10 or 15% of the offense as opposed to 2%, just so he doesn't look completely pathetic. This went a step too far in terms of a squash for a pay-per-view. I would have done this booking on TV you build up a big match, you know, on TV, you give them this, and then you do the eventual rematch on a big show. It was a squash. I have no grade. Uh, you know, I, a lot of people were very surprised when this happened, but the, is, when it finished, you know, I was like, you know what? I think I like that. Because if you're going to have Hobbs win, this is how he should win. He's freaking powerhouse Hobbs. Just look at him. Like, yeah. this is how this should go. The, all the stuff the past few weeks with the factory, it was a really convoluted and strange story, as is often the case here. But you tell the story here now that Hobbs is just a is just bigger and stronger, and Ricky Starks can't compete with that. Well, then you got the story about Ricky Starks having to work his way back up to overcome him. Like, that's a good story. So in a vacuum, I really liked it. And the context of the entire card, like you said... Yeah, there are some some issues with that, but I'm a lot more interested in Hobbs and Starks now than I was before. So I think this was I think this was overall a good decision, even though there are some things, you know, people can can be upset about. But I come out of this being like, oh, shit, like powerhouse Hobbs. Like, I forgot that's a guy we should kind of like take seriously. Absolutely. And that's what you need. So when Ricky Starks eventually does beat him, it means a lot more. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you on that one. Uh, Wardlow and FTR fought Jay Lethal and the Motor City Machine Guns on Rampage. The Pinnacle team cut a promo with Dax Harwood doing another sob story deal, bringing up how people were wondering why this match is happening. I was like, oh, they're going to give us an answer. His only explanation was that it matters to him because he's near the end of his career and every match he wrestles adds to his legacy. So in reality, no explanation was given. MCMG interrupted and said a lot of words without really saying anything. Sanjay Dutt then insulted Dax's daughter, and that was it. Before the match, Dutt put on a fight like an eight-year-old girl shirt, but he crossed out girl and wrote brat. Dax's daughter walked them out. It was a really cool moment with them on the stage. There was a really, this was in many ways, like a good classic tag team wrestling match, but it was slow and not at all worth breaking down in detail. Wardlow got held down and Satnam Singh punched him in the head. Lethal hit an elbow drop on Wardlow. Dax hit a slingshot Liger bomb before FTR hit the big rig. 
Lethal caught them with lethal injection. Wardlow killed him with a lariat and hit four power bombs on lethal for the win. The heels put Singh in place of lethal. They were getting ready to attack after the bell. When Samoa Joe made his return, he drilled Singh with his title. He went down easy and he threw Dutt into the ring. Dax's daughter then ran down. She snapped the pencil out of Dutt's ear. Dax knocked him out with one punch and she put her foot on his chest and the referee counted the one, two, three. The crowd cheered and the bell rang. Off the bat, the finish or the post-match with Dax's daughter, it was incredible, all right? I'm a sap about stuff like that. I don't have any kids or whatever, but like it was cool. Props to that. You know, should it probably have happened like on Dynamite after Dynamite went off the air? Okay, yeah, probably should, right? That's what they should have done. But it was kind of cool. And they did work her into the storyline. So that's a moment she's going to remember. And I appreciate that. The Samoa Joe return was cool. It felt completely unnecessary. But this match, to my utter shock, completely underdelivered. It was slow and boring. MCMG didn't do as well as I expected. I could totally see fans of theirs saying otherwise. But for an FTR match with Wardlow in it to be like this, super disappointed. I went 2.75 stars and a C plus. Yeah, it, it was disappointing. I think a lot of people could sense, and it, it kind of was the same thing with the Elite versus United Empire, which was you kind of just wanted to see Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay. And in this match, it felt like you just wanted to see FTR on the Motor City Machine Guns. And, you know, it, it just it wasn't that, so it kind of felt like a letdown. Crowd wasn't super into it. They did get into it when Wardlow kind of got to do his thing at the end, which, whatever. So match was not that exciting, whatever. This was, like you said, one of the few matches where they did let the post-match breathe for a bit. So it means something at the end. All the stuff with Dax's daughter, absolutely loved all of that. Very, very cool. Zero complaints whatsoever about that. That is That was very awesome. Um, match itself, not that interesting, though. All righty. Uh, the TBS championship was on the line. Jade Cargill defending against Athena. On Rampage, there was a backstage interview confrontation with Athena saying she would beat Jade on behalf of all the women who've had to deal with her bullshit over the last two years. I actually thought it was fantastic. It was Athena's best moment in AEW, easily Jade's best interview segment. The whole thing felt real, and it was so good that it actually got me rethinking my pick. Obviously, I didn't change it on our pre-show. You and I both had Jade, I think, retaining the title. Uh, Jade got a She-Hulk entrance that looked amazing. Athena immediately hit the O-face after the bell, but the baddies were late pulling her legs. Didn't matter because Jade basically kicked out of her finisher anyway. Jade <laughs> caught her with a mid-air Samoan drop and a spear. Jade caught O-face and tried for Jaded, but Athena escaped and hit a stunner. Jade then caught her springing off the ropes and hit Jaded for the win in four minutes. This had zero flow. It was a bunch of mistimed spots. There was also no selling because they had to get so much in despite a really short period of time. I mean, Athena got her finisher ruined at the bell. The wrestling in some areas was better than expected, but for Athena, one of the few women in AEW who I actually want to see to lose that quickly after a month's long storyline. I know it was building up Statlander, but Athena was there with her the entire time. To lose like this in four minutes to, have, to give a women's match four minutes when you have three trios matches on the card, one of which is for a title, the other two of which weren't and didn't need to be there at all. This was sad as hell. Two stars, C minus. The women put in the work, so it's not their fault. I'm giving them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. Horrendous with the timing and everything else. It's not great when you have 15 matches and two of them are women's matches. Um, and one of them is four minutes. I, yes. 
I don't I did I I missed the beginning of your bit there. Um but did you mention Jade coming out? She's dressed as She Hulk. Yeah. Yes. Excalibur thought she was green for money. That was very odd. That <laughs> he said that he seemed to not pick up the juice dust as She Hulk. Seeing her with their that hair color was jarring, kinda had to figure it out. Uh just get used to it. Um Yeah, there's nothing really much more to say in this other than I'll just I'll throw it in here. I thought commentary was terrible tonight. Oh, I, I think it's it, it's Excalibur just talks too much. He there is he never stops. It's partly because he has to explain a million things and everything moves so quickly that he's got to fill it all in. It's not all on him. It's kind of the situation he's in. Taz and Shivani and I think Jr. for a little bit did not provide much of anything. They had some side conversations during matches that were very quiet and difficult to hear. I just thought it was a very, very brutal night for commentary. I just wrote it down here because they didn't get the She-Hulk reference. And so, yeah. Oh, commentary didn't point that out, really? No, no. They, they probably couldn't mention it. It's a Marvel product, Disney product. Maybe, maybe. But then don't have her dress up as freaking She-Hulk. Like, yeah. down to the point she was dressed as She-Hulk. Well, you know, you know, and, I don't know. And Excalibur, I'm gonna, I'm... Saying she, Excalibur said she's coming out, uh, she's, painted green because she likes money. I was like, what? I'm going to defend it. I'm going to defend it. Okay. Because Johnny Gargano in WWE and NXT, every single takeover, he had a different Marvel themed gear and everyone on Twitter and social media and the IWC loved it and would talk about it. They never mentioned it on commentary that it was Iron Man or that it was this or that. They probably couldn't do it. I don't blame them for that. That's fine. But then just don't say it. Don't say that she's green because of money. Line. You say that was the part. she's looking monstrous. Yeah. Or she's hulking like, up. Oh, she's looking like tough. Or, yeah. yeah. Like something like right. that. I right. just, I thought, I don't, that, that made me think he didn't know what she was. Maybe, maybe he, she, he had to have known. That's why I was so, was like, what are you talking yeah, they about, definitely man? Know, yeah. So it, not the biggest mistake on commentary, but I just wrote it down there. Overall, did not think commentary was good though. No, commentary was terrible. The entire show actually. Um, except for Excalibur, who's very good normally. Uh, that was the main show. That was the last match on the main card. Let's get to the four zero hour matches. We had Eddie Kingston against Tomohiro Ishii. Uh, on Rampage, we got a short video package for this. It was nice given that it was kind of announced out of nowhere, but you know, it didn't really do much to sell the match any further. So on All Out, on the zero hour, they chopped the hell out of each other, their chest for a bit, two straight minutes to start the match. And the vast majority of the match was them chopping, slapping, and exchanging blows. There was a bad botch that Kingston sold as an injured shoulder. They exchanged suplexes and backdrops. Fans chanted, this is awesome. I, you know, I liked it. I didn't think it was awesome. Uh, Kingston hit a flying lariat and a powerbomb for a 2.8 count. Ishii blocked the spinning backfist and hit a basement lariat for near falls. Kingston finally countered Ishii with a spinning backfist for a 2.9 falls finish. Kingston hit a second backfist, and then he countered Ishii with a Northern Lights bomb for the win. After the bell, Eddie cut his own music to honor Ishii, but Ishii refused to take the respect. I couldn't tell if like that was storyline or if he was working. Perhaps we're going to get another fight between them. I would definitely see it again. Up until the botch, I was yawning though. It, and then suddenly, right after that, the entire thing picked up in a major way. That was a symptom of a number of matches. Like halfway through, I was kind of bored. And then when they got to the finish, it was really, really good. Uh, It was kind of a bastardized version, you could say, of Gunther and Sheamus from Clash of the Castle. It was certainly entertaining. And at the end of the day, what did we get, Chris? We got... Oh, we got two big 
a little delayed biggie, but it's late. I'll let you get away with it. I went 3.5 stars and a B, four full slabs of B for this one. If it wasn't on the same weekend as Gunther and Sheamus, which by the way, was the match of the weekend as far as I'm concerned, if it wasn't on the same weekend, I probably would have given it a better grade, but it just didn't come anywhere close to that match. I, I said this on the Twitter Spaces pre-show we did, which was, I wonder if the two of these guys are going to try to beat the shit out of each other and try to top Gunther Sheamus. I don't know if they did or didn't. It's Eddie Kingston and Ishii. Like, this is probably going to be the way it was anyway. Um, it got It got better once they got out of the slapping. I am so sick of chest slaps. It has been beaten to death in both companies, but especially AEW. Every single show, you're doing a slap off. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Ishii's arm and shoulders like turning purple from it, but I don't know if the mics weren't done well, but you couldn't even hear the slaps half the time. It just looked like they were waving at each other. It, it just, I'm so sick of slaps that was not wrestling like that it was like five minutes of that at the beginning of the match and it's just it's not wrestling eventually they got into wrestling and it picked up and it got better but i just it was fine i just hated the beginning of that i was i'm just i'm done with every single other match we get guys doing chest slaps off it's been beaten to death i'm so sick of that move so staying with zero hour we have the all atlantic championship pack against kip sabian sabian got a really great reaction Pack hit a brainbuster outside, Kip did his distraction headbutt and dragon suplex. Kip then hit a tornado DDT and slingshot brainbuster, plus a cross-legged Mishinoku driver cover for a couple near falls. Sabian was frustrated and he started talking to his box, asking it what to do. Pack won with a black arrow in 10 minutes. I thought this was going to be like a banger, but it was actually kind of disappointing and low energy, despite both guys being really talented wrestlers. I went 2.75 stars and a C plus. Yeah, it was fine. I, I thought we'd get more kind of a re kind of a rebooting Kip Sabian performance. Didn't quite get that pack just leaves afterward and Kip Sabian's sitting there yelling at his box. So <laughs> I guess he's just kind of going to be where he is at his level. I was wondering if this would be something to kind of not win the title, but like just kind of like give him some juice again. And eh, it didn't really. No, it did not. Um, pack went to get interviewed on the stage when orange Cassidy's music hit pack grabbed the mic and just said no, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Pack said Orange is not a wrestler, but a joke and should get to the back of the line. Orange had no reply. Meanwhile, Kip was in the ring screaming at his box. On one hand, I love that Orange is like a thorn in Pack's side. This guy's a bastard. Orange is kind of like whatever, you know, just what he is. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, he should be at the back of the line for anything against him. And it does feel repetitive that they're going to go right back into a feud. So I hope that's what actually happens rather than them wrestling Wednesday or soon. I don't know if you have anything else to say, but. I wanted to get that in there. No, other than like, it was really funny the first time we got Pack and Orange Cassidy like three years ago. Like that was a star making performance from Orange Cassidy. I don't think you can just run that back. Um, I don't know. I did think it was funny when they did the backstage bit with the two teams and Dan Housen got the best friends together and they put their hands together and Dan Housen just said, go. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was funny. But uh, other than that, no other thoughts. All right. Uh, we have the FTW Championship Hook against Angelo Parker. On Rampage, Parker confronted Hook and said he'd expose him. Hook took off his shirt and they backed down. And Matt Menard was kind of acting like a fool. So on the show, uh, Action Bronson was ringside. Menard helped distract so Parker could get up on Hook early. Hook won in a few minutes after Red Rum. Menard attacked Hook immediately after the bell, leading Bronson out of the crowd 
to toss both of the heels by their waist. It's strange. I still think that Hook is just not allowed to wrestle, yet he's on TV constantly. It wasn't the worst thing in the world, but there was nothing notable about this. I'm sorry, you're going to get mad. Uh, 1.5 stars and a D plus. It was nothing. I don't even know what to say. Uh, I missed uh, these because I was driving home at the moment from the airport. So I didn't see the first half of the pre-show. We also had a AAA mixed tag team match, Sammy Guevara and Ty Mello against Ortiz and Ruby Soho. And wouldn't you know it, we got this exact same match 48 hours earlier on Rampage. There was a lot here with too many double teams to break down on like an instant analysis. Ortiz dumped Sammy literally on his head, the German suplex. Ruby rolled Tay over for the win. They pointed to the titles after the bell. And yes, so this was a direct rematch of last week, which made the zero hour match their third meeting in eight days. Remember, AEW doesn't do rematches. And this match had zero business being on this show, given how loaded the card was already. It started with a backstage attack, made its way into the crowd after Ortiz hit Sammy with a cart and a callback. The faces beat him two on one. Sammy bled literally one minute after the bell rang. Tay, or Ty, uh, hit a leapfrog uh, code red over Sammy onto Ortiz, with Sammy adding a senton bomb for a near fall. Anna Jay interfered. The faces countered the heels finishers for a double near fall. Tay then, Tay, Ty, whatever the hell it's late, then superplexed Ruby uh, into the guys outside before she hit the Ty KO back inside on Soho to retain the titles. Ruby legitimately broke her nose in the finish, which sucked. And there were probably four or five times during this match where she almost got seriously hurt. And then she finally did at the very end. It was almost as if like Sammy and Mello just had no care to protect her whatsoever. Really, really disappointing. There was good action here, but again, it's the third time we saw this match in just over a week. And it was another trite Anna Jay interference, which happens every single time. The thing was overbooked. And there were so many close-ups of like <laughs> the champion's French kissing that it was just like overindulgent and ridiculous. The whole thing went six minutes, 2.5 stars and a C. I mean, what are, what are we doing here? I uh, did not see this one either. I was... Okay. Driving home. All right. So that is the instant analysis for AEW All Out. Let's get to our grades for the entire show. Chris, a reminder for everyone, you and I in the pre-show, correct me if I'm wrong, we both said B, flat B. Is that I correct? said B. I said B plus. You said B. All right. You said B plus. I said flat B. In our pre-show poll from our uh, Getting Overheads, our listeners on Twitter at Getting Overcast, you guys said 15% A, 47% B, 32% C and 6% D to F. I thought those totals were very surprising. Much larger percentage of Cs than I expected, and I think a larger percentage than we've ever had for an AEW pay-per-view. And 6% D to F, that's a legitimate total. Like, it's not usually, it's usually 1%, 2%, 3%. 6% is a lot. Uh, I averaged this out to a B minus expectation grade based on the averages of those numbers. Uh, so again, Chris, B plus, pre-show, Silver King, B Listeners, B minus. That's how we're going into it. So, Chris, it is time for the post show grades. Uh, as always, I let you go first. What is your final grade? I'm very curious to see what you say here for AEW All Out. So, there were only probably three or four matches in the end on this card that I cared about and that I really liked the trios match, the AEW tag team match, the main event, Pac Monks, Punk Moxley and kind of the women's interim match. So like three, three and a half matches that I like really liked out of a 15 match card. And I always say, look, you need moments to, de to define 
the card. Did things happen? We got a new women's champion. We got a new AEW world champion. We got an MJF return. So I sit between B minus B. Interesting. For for that. And if we're talking about just the wrestling itself, I'm at B minus. Considering they did give us a couple things like some title changes and an MJF return, it bumps it up to a low B for me. We're talking like 83 out of 100. Is 83 a B in grading? I'm trying to remember. It probably yeah, is, I guess. It's right around there. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right on that border. Um, look, 15 matches is too many. Uh, mm-hmm. Five plus hours is too long. One squash and another short match is okay. Four of them is not. Uh, you mentioned commentary. Jim Ross was horrendous on the show. He was basically doing video game commentary, like repeating the same shit. We have the best crowds. Our product is so good. The entire show. So commentary didn't even like come in and save it. They Some also the match, mentioned the they also mentioned the buy rate of they, previous shows. They mentioned the buy rate. We, we did a million dollar buy rate <laughs> who here. Cares, man? Like, who gives a what are you shit? Talking about yeah. So like that's like an overindulgent AEW ism here. You mentioned there were four matches you were looking forward to. I, I, there were like six or seven matches I was legitimately well looking not looking forward to. Forward to it, but in, in the end, there were like there were three and a half, four that I came out of being like, all right, that was really good. Well, I'm, I, I you know, I'm breaking about. down the whole show and, you know, I, I give you my match grades and, and my show grade is not an average of my match grades because as you noted, the show is about much more than the in-ring wrestling. It's, it's what does the show tell you? And what this show told me is they just didn't give a shit about a lot of the matches they booked. The Two best matches on the card were the tag team title match and the trios title match. Beyond those two, I don't know that from a rating standpoint, I gave anything else in the four star range. Um, three, lots of three, seven, fives and all that type of stuff. So th- some of the match quality was good, but a lot of it really disappointed. Brian Danielson and Chris Jericho, just as an example, was super disappointing. The women's match, I thought the work was good. But the crowd was awful, and it really hampered Tony Storm's win, which should have been a big moment. There were a lot of matches that had a lot of really talented wrestlers that we, I mean, they were either mediocre, or they were bad, or we didn't see them at all because they were squashes. So, I, you know, then you talk about the MJF thing. Yes, you are right. That did add a lot of gravitas to the show. It did make it way more important than it otherwise would have been. But what did we talk about at the beginning here? All the ways in which that wasn't exactly perfect and where they really could have done it a lot better. I mean, you said at the beginning of the show, something to, to the effect of AEW creates a lot of big moments, but it doesn't really execute them all real, you know, perfectly or really well. And I think that was an example of it. I loved it. I, it's, most of it. I'm very happy that MJF is back. Was it cleanly executed? I wouldn't necessarily say that. But most notably beyond all of that, I saw a lot of people saying, hey, the booking tonight, if you didn't like it, that's because you just wanted clean match finishes. And what Tony Khan did was he was furthering storylines. Let me make something clear. AEW, not counting Forbidden Door, has four pay-per-views a year. You don't further storylines when you have four pay-per-views a year on those pay-per-views. You do that when you're WWE. And you have 12, 13, 14, 15. You can say, okay, for some of these matches, 
ah, let's give you some bullshit and we'll further a storyline. And we criticize them when they do that. Why? Because back in the day with WWE and currently now with AEW, we are paying $50 a pop to get not furthered storylines that we should be seeing on Dynamite and Rampage, but conclusions to feuds and big moments and things that you're going to remember. And I will remember Swerve in Our Glory and the Acclaimed. And I will remember that trios match. And maybe to a, a small extent, I'll remember the MJF and CM Punk and John Moxley, that whole thing. But the rest of the show, completely not memorable. Chris, you know when you leave a meeting or like a Zoom these days and you're like, man, that could have been an email. This show could have been an email or it could have been like two episodes of Dynamite, say for the main event in the trios match. So I, I got, I got it. Well, similar to that note, I'm going to back your point up here. I got, I got a friend, uh, Dan Trainer uh, on, on Twitter who said all out has felt like a fascinating show and in many ways indicative of whatever weird funk the company has been in. Correct. Some incredible action, but nothing really feels like it matters. It's like a night of good to great dynamite main events. Yes. In many ways that that is good. You did steal my thunder a little bit there. I was on a roll, but I accept it because it was a good comment. Um, So based on all of what I just said, this was, look, it wasn't a great show. It wasn't a very good show. And I failed to say it was a good show when I'm sitting there for the vast majority of the show saying to myself, I kind of wish this would end. I just, I'm kind of tired. I just want, I don't want this anymore. Like I'm done. That is not a good show, especially for a pay-per-view. I think it's one of the weakest, if not the weakest AEW pay-per-view in the history of the company. And to my utter shock, I am not even in the B range. I'm giving this a C plus. That is my grade. Uh, before I continue and give the listener grades, Chris, do you have any reaction to that? No, that make that makes sense. I, I it fits everything with with what we've done before. That's C plus. I mean that that puts it up there with uh, among the lowest grades we've ever given on this show. Yep. And I think we may have done it for the last AW pay per view too. Uh, were we, we at C the last plus? We weren't at B minus well. for that. It was, but we were in that range, that C plus B minus range. I believe there, there was one WWE show not too long ago. I think we might've given a C mm-hmm. plus. We definitely did. Yeah. Backlash might've been. Uh, or remember. something maybe day one or like one of those. Yeah. Something, something early in the year we did. I, you're right about that. So uh, yeah, not uh, look again, like, like you said, if you're only going to do four ish of these a year, you got to make them big. You yes. got to make them feel like your SummerSlam, your WrestleMania. Instead we get this. I mean, it's not, this isn't the biggest deal, but like the same sets, the same everything, it all feels the same. And you give us 15 matches that it's just, it's, it's too much, man. I get you want to give us our, our money's worth, but you're, it's a disservice to the stories you're trying to tell. Like AW's at a point now where you can't live on dream matches and surprises anymore. You have to tell real deep stories that have a start point and an end point and they don't drag on for months and you do rematches and you've got a big dynamite every other week. Like you got to have this planned out and the booking has been a problem. And you think about where AW was a year ago to where they are now. TV is fine. TV ratings and everything's fine. The company's fine, but like, it's just not an interesting product week to week. And it doesn't build up to these shows. And look, Fulham is in the middle of their season now. I don't know if that has anything to do with what Tony Khan's doing or not. He seems to have a million things on his table, on his 
whatever. And now you got to deal with the CM Punk press conference after that. It's just, it's a real mess right now. And I think, I think coming out of the show where a lot of people are only going to be talking about what CM Punk said, Mm -hmm. instead of the story you were trying to tell, one of the actual stories you're trying to tell, is just really indicative of, again, the funk the company is in. It is. And it needs to really write itself. CM Punk did to MJF tonight what MJF did to Wardlow at the last yeah. pay-per-view. Made it about himself. And took the um, the juice of the evening and the moment away from the person what it sh- that it should have been about. And yes, CM Punk won the title. But whereas MJF didn't speak to the media and just did what he did and did... He did business. He went out there and lost and got squashed and like they did what they did. Um, you know, it was the media and fans that talked about MJF instead of Wardlow. This is CM. This was CM Punk talking about CM Punk instead of MJF and airing his grievances, doing a um, a festivus, for lack of a better term, in this press conference, which again, we'll get to at another point. We're at the grades. We're almost, I don't want to keep going here. But point is, I was extremely disappointed with this show. Um, again, when I'm sitting at the end of the show and I'm like, this just needs to end, I'm done. And I was, I was done at like 10. So the fact that this went to like 1230, it was just exhausting. It was too much. You do, this is what they should do. 10 match cards for their big, their four big shows, eight on the main show, two on the pre-show, let the thing go for maybe four and a half hours at most. And I think everyone's happy because you're getting a lot of quality. If you picked out Mm -hmm. the eight best matches here, and just condense that into a show, my grade probably would have been around a B. Yeah. Something like that. But that wasn't the case. There were seven more matches on top of that. It's always the case with AW shows. If you take out the top half that you like and cut out the bottom half, like then you've got a really good show. Yeah. That's that's how it always is. They just, it puts too much and it takes away from everything else. And lastly, before we move out of AEW, we have to get our post-show grades from the Getting Overheads, our listeners and followers on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Here are the totals. 15% said A, 41% said B, 41% said C, and 3% went D or F. So off the top, uh, that's very tough math uh, for me to do, but I look at that probably as a B minus, a B maybe? Probably, yeah. Probably Probably right where you are actually, like an 84. Yeah, about about Or an 83, 83 or something like that. Uh, out of 100. So, you know, I think uh, the majority of the listeners uh, a little bit higher than me uh, where you are, but, you know, we're right there. We're right um, in that range where it was fair to good, but not very good or great. And that's how I think it's good to wrap up AEW all out. Yep. All right. I appreciate Chris joining me to break down AEW all out. Next, we are going to move into the NXT Worlds Collide Instant Analysis, and the Silver King is going to do that solo. All right, holy shit, we went longer on AEW All Out than we expected, but there's still a ton to break down. From NXT Worlds Collide went down Sunday afternoon. We're going to start with the main event. We're going to run through this entire card. Not going to be short on it. Don't you worry. The show's going to go a little long, but we're going to get to the entire thing. We will start with the main event of the show, the title versus title NXT NXT UK men's unification match Braun Breaker defending uh, the NXT championship against Tyler Bate, who was defending the NXT UK championship. Very quickly, before we get to that match, on the final episode of NXT UK, we had Tyler Bate against Trent Seven for the vacant title. I watched that match. 
It was so freaking good. I have to break it down. Uh, seven countered a German suplex into a Snapdragon. Bait came back with a deadlift vertical suplex. Bait sold an injured leg, but hit the rebound Lariat and Tyler Driver 97 for a perfect 2.99 false finish. Seven countered a superplex into a sick avalanche anvil throw and hit the Tyler Driver 97 himself for another false finish. Seven snapped his fingers, but Bait countered with a tornado DDT and hit the seven star Lariat for another close fall. Bait jumped to the top rope for a corkscrew senton. He escaped the fold up, connecting with his misdirection strike and a second Tyler Driver 97 to win the title in a 20 minute British strong style banger. I would go longer on this, but this is already a long show. Let me just say, it was exceptionally wrestled. It's a must-watch match, given especially it's the last official NXT UK match ever. I actually went 4.75 stars and an A-plus for it. It was one of the best WWE matches of the year. And to end the brand with the inaugural champion winning the title back, it was a chef's kiss on the entire thing. Again, definitely a must-watch match and episode by the way. So let's get to NXT Worlds Collide, uh, Bait versus Breaker. Braun had a normal entrance without breaking something for a change. Bait had a special entrance where he passed by projected clips of top NXT UK moments on various walls. There was a Tyler Two Belts chant at the bell and some really good mat wrestling early. Bait caught Braun midair, countering a Frankensteiner into a Liger Bomb. Breaker hit a flying top rope bulldog and a gut wrench sent down power bomb. Braun caught the misdirection strike for a submission but Bate deadlifted him into a helicopter Mishinoku driver and hit the rebound Lariat for a pair of near falls. Braun countered Tyler Driver 97 into two covers, but Bate lifted him clean, countering into Tyler Driver 97 for an incredible 2.99 false finish. Breaker took Bate off the top rope with his press power slam, but Bate got his foot on the rope. The crowd chanted big strong boy and Braun got booed. Bate stopped the spear with a kick. He hit the misdirection strike, but Braun avoided Tyler Driver 97. Bait countered the press power slam into a near fall, only for Breaker to counter the rebound lariat with a short area spear that must have been, I don't know, a foot. Like it was insane. Total explosion from him for the win to unify the titles in 17 minutes. After the bell, Bait handed Braun the titles and put him over. This was as dynamic of a finish as we've seen in a really long time. It was tremendous from bell to bell. The finishing sequence was outstanding. It did enough to make one think Bate might actually win. And the final moves that we got here were perfectly executed to flip it both ways, back and forth. I went 4.5 stars and an A. And I promise you, I am shocked that I went this high on this match. But that is how freaking good Tyler Bate is. Um, and Braun Breaker, man, he is really coming along. This is one of the best. You know, You know what? I'm trying to think if it's the best NXT 2.0 match. It's up there. If it's not the best, it's definitely top five, and it's really, really close to the top. Ultimately, the expectation was Braun would win. That's exactly what happened. In terms of NXT versus NXT UK, every winner on the show was exceedingly predictable. But this was the first time since the end of the Dolph Ziggler feud where I actually cared about Braun as champion. He's had some bangers with Tommaso Ciampa, but... This may well be the best match of his career. And Bate just is a phenomenal wrestler. Hopefully Braun doesn't go right back into the feud with JD McDonough. That would drag him back down again. As far as Bate goes, I have no idea what they're going to do with him. Him taking down Carmelo Hayes would make a lot of sense. That could allow Hayes to get elevated up to the main title picture. That match would, of course, bang. I also want to give a shout out to Vic Joseph. He had one of the best commentary calls of the year during this match. He said... You talk about being born into this, referring to Braun Breaker. Tyler Bate 
was born for this. Tremendous stuff from him the entire show. Uh, let's go to the title versus title women's unification match. Mandy Rose, the NXT champion, Mako Satomura, the NXT UK champion, and Blair Davenport, the legitimate number one contender. She did win that honor on the final episode of NXT UK that I watched. There was a really nice video package for Satomura with clips of her wrestling across 27 years, starting in WCW. I didn't even know she wrestled there all the way to NXT UK. Davenport and Rose also got packages and Mandy was the only one out of them who really got like what I would call a special entrance. Uh, she pulled up in a really nice car. She also had American flag gear that um, good, but she's got me saying, hey now. Uh, Rose shit talked and disrespected Satamora uh, by shoving her for a bunch only for Mako to beat her ass before eating a good spine buster. Davenport hit a perfect Northern light suplex on Rose. Mandy nailed her with a superplex. Maiko hit Blair with a frog splash. Mandy broke the count. The crowd chanted women's wrestling. Satamora kicked the shit out of both of them and hit a great double DDT. She hit Mandy with the Satamora special, but missed Blair with it. Mako countered Mandy into a Death Valley driver, but Blair broke the fall with a diving double stomp and delivered a big pump knee for a 2.8 false finish. Davenport hit Satamora with a missile dropkick and tried to cover on Rose, but Satamora hit Scorpion Rising. Suddenly out of nowhere, Mandy runs across the ring Hits both women with kissed by a rose. I think she hit Davenport in the head and that ricocheted into Satamora's head, knocking her out of the ring. Then she covered Blair for the win to unify the titles in 14 minutes. This was easily, without question, the best match of Mandy Rose's career. Not a surprise when she's wrestling Mako, damn Satamora, and Bia Priestley. But still, they were great and she completely held her own. This was the first time, just like I said with Braun, it's the first time since the Champa and Ziggler feuds that I was okay with him being champion. This was the first time I was actually okay with thinking of Mandy Rose as a women's champion. It took, you know, 313 days for us to get here, but it finally happened. Uh, the booking was predictable. It was obvious Sotomora would not win. Davenport seemed like the fall person the entire time. I called it from the very second this happened on TV. And I'm not saying that's some Barry Horowitz pat on the back. I'm sure a lot of people called it but that's how obvious it was is what I'm saying. I went 3.5 stars and a B. Very good match. Not as good comparatively as the AEW uh, interim women's championship match, but very close to the same level. That one was above this one. That's why this is a quarter grade lower. Uh, now, do I understand why Mandy is still champion and why Toxic Attraction is stuck in NXT yet not called up? No, I cannot explain that to you. The tag team's ready to go. They already had a match on SmackDown. Mandy's obviously already been up there. This was an easy situation to take the title off of her, and yet she's still champion. At this point, you must assume they're going to go calendar year with her at least another month and a half, which is frustrating, sure. Hopefully Alba Fire or someone else takes the title from her soon after that milestone is reached, because this just, it, it like, again, this match was good, and I put a rose solid, but... I'm done with it. They need to be done with it. Toxic Attraction needs to be on the main roster and they have to reset the main event men's and women's divisions in NXT. I would take the title off Braun. I'd put it on one of a number of people, but Carmelo Hayes is ready for it. Uh, and in terms of the women, there's a number of different women. Zoe Stark, Alba Fire. I mean, you could make a case if you really wanted to for Tiffany Stratton to give her the Braun Breaker treatment if you wanted to. I wouldn't do that, but you could make a case. And now Blair Davenport's there. She would be a great champion as well. There's probably one or two others I'm forgetting about. So they need to move on. But this, for what it was, was very good. 
Uh, we had a title versus title tag team championship unification match. The Creed Brothers, the NXT champions, against Briggs and Jensen, the NXT UK champions, Gallus and Pretty Deadly. This was an elimination match. Before the show, Roderick Strong was attacked and bloodied in the NXT parking lot. Diamond Mine was not there, but they showed up after he got loaded into the ambulance. There was a Norman Smiley cameo that popped me, and we eventually learned that Strong is unconscious but in stable condition in the hospital. Damon Kemp pumped up the Creed brothers in the dojo before the match and got them ready. The bell rang, or I should say before the bell rang, everyone brawled, all eight dudes. As predicted, Briggs and Jensen were quickly eliminated to clear the field of one set of champions. Wolfgang got taken out with an assisted, elevated Brutus Bomb-style doomsday device. That eliminated Gallus. That was a total surprise to me. Gallus and Briggs and Jensen brawled by the entrance. Inside, Julius Creed went to one knee while doing a vertical suplex. He stood back up to complete it. He caught Elton Prince with a fireman's carry slam. The referee slid outside to make the count. And when he did that, he got run over by all the brawling wrestlers. Kemp saved a near chair attack from Kit Wilson. Instead, he picked up the chair and hit Julius with it before hitting Strong's backbreaker over his knee in a heel turn. He revived the referee for the one, two, three as Pretty Deadly became the unified champions in 14 minutes. Brutus disappeared for like the final five minutes of the match. I completely missed what happened to him, but it was really weird that he was not there in the finish. It was also strange that commentary didn't contextualize for the audience that Kemp used a backbreaker, not just a backbreaker, but one of Strong's signature backbreakers, given that was the entire point of the storyline. At least that's my perspective. Now, maybe Kemp turned on his own and he attacked Strong, but I have to believe this is with Strong's backing and they were playing the Creed Brothers. It was an entertaining, but it was a sloppy match. The wrestling was good in parts, but a 14-minute elimination match is way too short to get in that much work. And there was just way too much chaos to enjoy the entering work. It was overbooked. I went 2.75 stars and a C plus. Very disappointing. I thought this was going to be way better. We had a North American Championship match. Carmelo Hayes defending against Ricochet. This opened the show. Melo's entrance included retired jerseys of all the big names he's already defeated. There was a great moment early where Ricochet had a fan hold Melo's arms so he could chop him. And Melo gave the fan a dirty look. That was cool. Rick hit a handspring backflip off the ropes as Mello caught him with a springboard cutter in a crazy spot. Then they did an insane double springboard mid-air crossbody. The crowd went absolutely wild when they did this. There was a bunch of athletic counters before Rick hit recoil, but Trick Williams pulled Mello's leg for the broken fall. Rick responded with a tope drop kick, taking him out. Mello caught him back inside with an elevated cutter for a near fall. Rick then caught Mello on the top rope, moving from a Spanish fly into a superplex for a holy shit chant very well deserved. They exchanged two strikes before Rick hit a brain buster and a drop heel kick, but Mello immediately caught him with a code breaker. Rick countered Mello into a crucifix pinning combination for a legitimate 2.99 false finish. He followed with a poison Rana. Ricochet then went for his finish, but Trick again interfered. He had to springboard drop kick him off the apron. That gave, gave Mello the opening to avoid a shooting star press and lock Rick into an inside cradle to retain the title in 16 minutes exceptional match, incredible opener for the show, perfect booking with Ricochet getting an excused loss, but Mello looking tremendous in victory. The distractions ruined the flow a little bit too frequently, and there wasn't enough of a match story, which those were the only downgrades really I had because these guys were smooth as hell. This completely lived up to expectations, 4.25 stars and an A for a nearly flawless match. We also had the NXT Women's Tag Team Championships defended, Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Dewdrop and Nikki Ash. Chance and Dewdrop together early. 
it was a really crazy contrast in size seeing them try to wrestle each other. But the Casey's outworked Dewdrop with speed. Katana hit a great springboard senton before Dewdrop put Carter into her with a world's strongest slam, like slammed her into the other one. Uh, Carter took Nikki down with a tornado DDT before hitting Nikki with a backstabber. Chance came down with a double stomp on her for a near fall. The heels combined for the ash drop, which is a Samoan drop neckbreaker, really cool move, but Chance broke the fall. Dewdrop was ready for a superplex when Toxic Attraction ran down. Nikki splashed them off the apron, and then Carter powerbombed Dewdrop out of the corner, and Chance hit the assisted 450 to retain the titles in 10 minutes. The distraction finish it did give an excuse to the main roster superstars for them to lose, so it was understandable in that context. But the idea of the Casey's beating Dewdrop instead of Nikki was ridiculous, especially when they've been telling the story of Nikki losing and being on this downward spiral and reconsidering her gimmick. I'd have liked to have seen the Casey's get over stronger. It was a solid title defense, but given Mandy retained earlier, it just concerns me that Toxic is going to win these back really soon. And the fact that they are still interfering in all of the Casey's title matches is just annoying when they should have completely been removed from the titles given they held them for so long and they finally lost them. I went three stars and a B minus for this match. It was better than the men's tag team elimination match. That's why I went with that grade. I'll probably rewatch this. Maybe each of those I'll dock a quarter star more. The point is, though, it was entertaining. There were some good spots. And it was nice that Dewdrop and Nikki were there because the fans loved it. And when you're trying to pop the NXT crowd, you know, doing stuff like that is always appreciated. Uh, those were all the matches from the show. There were a couple more segments. Tony D'Angelo told Stax he wasn't overly upset about Legado del Fantasma dipping out on them. Cameron Grimes walked by. D'Angelo asked him if he needed some new friends. He offered him some biscotti. And Grimes turned them down, joked that Legato left them. Uh, it wasn't their choice. And then he just walked out on the entire thing. Uh, Grayson Waller dissed the dyad while they were sitting at a table with yellow smiley face buttons. Someone in a red hoodie walked by and actually grabbed one of the buttons in the background while Waller said he was not apologetic for taking out Apollo Crews and poking his eye, even though his mother, all the way down in Australia, gave him shit for it and told him he was bringing down the family name. Waller said he didn't need friends or family to get the top on NXT, just himself. And he basically cut a promo against his mom. It was great. It really showed some range. Um, it, yeah, this was awesome from Waller. In terms of the dyad and schism, the fact that they're adding another member, oh my God, I... I it better not be anyone of note. I'm going to freak out. But Waller in this segment was great. And lastly, Wesley was backstage. He said it's tough to prepare for someone like J.D. McDonough, but that he wasn't worried about him and would take care of business on Tuesday. It really wasn't much of a promo. So that is the full breakdown from NXT Worlds Collide. I did go a little quickly just because the AEW All Out stuff went so long. But the truth is, this was not really a storyline-driven show. It was just about the matches uh, whether the finishes were good or not, and whether the champions made a lot of sense or didn't. And that's why the breakdown was relatively short. So let's uh, do the pre-show grades. We'll review those, and then we'll go ahead and give our post-show grades for NXT World's Collide pre-show. I came in with an A-. minus. Um, I just believe the card was super strong. It was the most takeover light card we've had from an NXT 2.0 premium live event to this point. I was very, very excited about it. The listeners kind of agreed with me, slightly lower. They were at 44% A, 53% B, 4% C, 0% D or F. So they were at a B plus where I was at an A minus. Uh, the two men's singles matches on the show I thought were phenomenal. The women's title match completely exceeded expectations, but the two tag team matches, as I noted, they were disappointing. 
Like with Clash at the Castle, what was missing here was a surprising finish or two or something to really get excited about coming out of the show. If Bait had one, for example, I could see being over the moon about this. And I think we were all right on with our pre-show grades, whether it was A- minus or B+. It was in that zone. It's really right on the line between those two. I'm going to side with the lower grade because both tag team matches were legitimately frustrating. And it just didn't feel like a card that was notably memorable. But that doesn't change the fact that in terms of my match grades, we had a 4-5 and a 4-2-5. And both of those men's singles matches, I really do suggest that you guys all watch. So the Silver King, in terms of a final grade, went with B+. In terms of you, the getting overheads are listeners who voted on Twitter. The totals were 49.5% A, uh, 45% B, 3% C, and 2% D or F. So you're right on there with me uh, in terms of, you know, A minus B plus. When you add the C's and D's to the B, it's really a split right between A and B. Um, so I guess it's like a 90 or an 89 out of 100. So it's really A minus B plus. I think our pre-show expectations were met. That's the most important, no matter what your final grade was for the show. NXT Worlds Collide was a lot of fun. You can argue about whether the right people won the championships. I would have given the women's title to Blair Davenport. I think that made a lot would have made a lot of sense. If I was going to take the titles off the Creed Brothers, I would have given them to Gallus, not Pretty Deadly, who already had a championship run and it was relatively disappointing. In 2.0, that said, they have a really kind of fun new gimmick deal with Lash Legend being with them. It was kind of unexpected, but it works really well. That's kind of interesting. And then I fully understand why Braun Breaker won the title. But man, if Tyler Bate had won it from him, it would have put Bate over huge. And at this point in NXT, I don't really know what else Braun Breaker has left to do. Maybe they're saving a call up for the Royal Rumble. Maybe they're not going to call him up and they're going to leave him down there for a while. And they just want him to be champion you know, until he loses the title and then eventually gets called up. If they do uh, a premium live event for NXT the Saturday before Royal Rumble, assuming that's a Sunday, and I don't know that it is, but if they do that or Breaker drops the title shortly before that show or perhaps even wrestles in the Royal Rumble as champion and then they do a PLE on the day after, perhaps that is when this whole thing will happen. But as of right now, it's just kind of, it's one note with Braun. It's gone on for way too long. It, like I said, ever since the Dolph Ziggler and Tommaso Ciampa feuds, everything he's done with Joe Gacy and JD McDonough, the matches, the match with McDonough was really good. The matches with Gacy were not. Um, it's been one note. It's been annoying. I haven't seen growth from him, but here with Tyler Bate in the ring, he looked like a bona fide superstar. And again, Tyler Bate was phenomenal as well. I, I'm quite sure AJ Styles would agree. Uh, so look, NXT Worlds Collide, really good. I'm definitely excited to see what the fallout is going to look like Tuesday on NXT. And certainly, given this is an AEW and NXT instant analysis, I'm very curious to find out what the fallout looks like from AEW All Out this Wednesday on Dynamite. This was an exceedingly deep and detailed show. Your AEW All Out and NXT Worlds Collide instant analysis Please do not forget, we have WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis waiting for you in our podcast feed, available everywhere, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. We had that issue. It is now live. You can listen to it. Please make sure you do that. We have a huge week coming up. Fallout from Clash at the Castle on Raw and SmackDown. 
Fallout from Worlds Collide on NXT, and Fallout from All Out on uh, Dynamite. I got tongue twisted there, but all these shows this week in the world of wrestling are going to be great. And the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is going to be with you the entire way. On Tuesday, we will have our next WWE show. And on Thursday, we'll have our AEW and NXT show. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Allow me to remind you on the way out that this show So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know why you listen and why they should subscribe. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That is it for tonight and this extremely long weekend for vintage Chris Vanini. This is the Silver King Adam Silverstein signing off and leaving you finally with three last words. Bye for now.